Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I am Kemper Donovan, and Merry Christmas to those of you who celebrate. Happy holidays to those of you who might be celebrating non-Christmas festivities. Happy end of the year to those who aren't celebrating any holidays at all. I'm so happy for each and every one of you to be here with me on this very special episode that I have titled A Christmas Christie for Christmas. And that is not a typo, listeners. For this episode, I am covering one of Agatha Christie's more unusual stories, one of her religious tales. You could even say her religious fables which she created for her short story collection, Star Over Bethlehem and Other Stories. My copy of that book proclaims it to be a Christmas Christie, the perfect little gift. And the reason it makes this claim is that many of the stories in the collection, especially the titular story, are religious in nature and the kind of thing Christian people in particular might like to read around the Christmas holiday. I discussed this collection at some length in a previous episode in which I covered that titular story, Star Over Bethlehem. I did that with the fabulous Sarah Hinlicky Wilson, a theologian and pastor and podcaster and author, among other things. And I'm actually going to be rerunning my conversation with Sarah at the end of this episode because it really is so perfect for the Christmas holiday. But I did not just want to do a rerun for you on this episode. I wanted to give you some original content as well. So first, I will be covering the second story in that collection, The Naughty Donkey. You heard me right. The Naughty Donkey. That is actually what the story that I am going to be discussing by Agatha Christie is called, or Agatha Christie Mallowan, I should say, because that is the technical name of the author of Star Over Bethlehem and other stories. Again, these were very personal to her, and the full name of Agatha Christie Mallowan indicates, I think, the fact that these stories are a little less about business than her mysteries and thrillers are, and a little bit more about who she is and what she holds near and dear to her heart. But before I get to the naughty donkey, I have a few matters to discuss. First up is the fact that my friend Sarah, my co-host for the second half of this episode, uh, has a short stories podcast in which she posts short stories that she's written. Per Sarah, I'm quoting from her here in an email that she sent to me, all my own stories with the utterly unimaginative title, Sarah Hinlicky Wilson stories. They are, of course, nothing like or on the level of Agatha stories, but I think readers who enjoy the sensibility behind Star Over Bethlehem might like mine. I have included a link to Sarah's podcast in the notes to this episode, but you can also find it at sarahhinlickywilsonstories.podbean.com. Next up is the podcast's ongoing pledge drive for ratings. Listeners, I officially have 900-900 ratings on Apple Podcasts as I make this recording. Woohoo! But remember, my pie-in-the-sky goal is 1,000 reviews on Apple Podcasts by the end of the year. And while 100 more reviews before the new year is a tall order... I know that there are 100 people, many more than 100 people actually, listening to this podcast right now who have not yet rated the show and who are feeling a little guilty about it. And you know what? This is not the season for guilt, listeners, or at least it shouldn't be. (laughs) So allow me to assuage your guilt by way of urging you once and for all just to rate the podcast. It will take a few seconds. You will feel so good about yourself. I will feel so good about you. 
In the spirit of the season, in the spirit of giving, I am going to provide you with some annoying Christmas music right now, just to make it extra easy for you to pause the episode. Here goes. I have a confession to make. I actually really love that Mariah Carey song. <laughs> I played a lot around this time of year. Anyway, thank you so, 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 so much, listeners. Your ratings really do mean the world to me. And I so appreciate all the new ratings I've gotten over the last few weeks. Let's see if we can make a Christmas slash New Year's miracle happen here. If I can get up to that magical number of 1,000. This is the last time in a while you will hear me drone on about ratings at the top of an episode. So thank you for bearing with me as you have for the last few weeks and for heeding my call. You are the absolute best. So in the new year, the ratings pledge drive will be over just in time for my upcoming debut mystery novel, The Busybody which will be hitting shelves just a few weeks into the new year on the 23rd of January in the United States. And a little later though, right around the same time in the UK and in Australia and New Zealand, I have provided links in the notes to this episode, as I always do these days for the pre-ordering of my book. So I just wanted to mention that up top. And I also wanted to mention that not only are you welcome to pre-order my book, you are also welcome to come see me when I start doing events at bookstores and libraries. Thus far, I am only touring in the United States, but I have every intention of taking that tour abroad if and when I can. So stay tuned on that front. And for those of you in the US, I've got a bunch of events lined up already, actually, in the Los Angeles area, in the Bay Area, up in Northern California, in Houston, in Scottsdale, in the New York area, I'm going to be in Connecticut, and there are more book events to come. They're currently being set, fingers crossed. I'll be up in New England. I might have a few dates in the Midwest. I'm also in including a link in the notes to this episode to my author website, which has a full rundown of events with addresses and times and everything. This really should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. I want to see as many of you as possible at these events. It would be so very joyous to meet you in person and to discuss not just my book, but Agatha Christie. I would just absolutely love to make as many in-person connections as I can at these events in these bookstores and libraries. What better forum could there possibly be for further delighting in mystery and Christie and books in general? So click on that link to my website. It'll take you right to the news and events section where all of my upcoming dates are. Uh, they are mainly at the end of January and beginning of February and then in April. And as I said, I will be adding some dates there as well. All right. It is still not quite yet time to discuss the naughty donkey because I would like to now go through some mailbag items, some housekeeping I've got a lot of fans of this housekeeping segment that I do from time to time on these episodes when listener responses pile up enough to run through a bunch of them. And I have a lot of really interesting responses from all of you listeners. So as usual, I will be starting with reactions to my more recent episodes and working my way backward. In response to my most recent episode, in which Kate Jackson taught me how to survive an Agatha Christie novel, I got this lovely message. Hi, Kemper. Hope you're well. Your recent guest mentioned her sister getting an Agatha Christie magazine about 20 years ago. I think she must be referring to the Hachette partwork, where a monthly subscription of around 16 pounds got you two replicas of first editions with a companion magazine for each. I collected all the novels this way. 
and they also included some of the plays and short stories and the autobiography. There were some bonus gifts, such as coasters and binders for the magazines as well. It's the closest I will ever come to owning first editions. Thank you for that message, listener. This is so great, and I am so jealous because we never had this in the States, that's for sure, and I would have loved it. And actually, Kate Jackson herself was kind enough to send me a few screenshots of these magazines after our conversation, and I think they are definitely the same thing that this listener is talking about. I was especially interested in all the extra content that was featured in the magazine. There was a deck of Agatha Christie-inspired playing cards that you could collect, including a box to hold them in. There was an article in the back of the magazine about famous women who inspired some of Christie's characters in three-act tragedy, since that was the novel that was being reprinted in that specific issue. Just really, really great stuff. I love that this existed and that so many of you were able to enjoy it. And if you still have any of those little bonus items, I would love to hear about them or perhaps even see them. You could always take a little snap and send it to me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. I just may feature it in a future mailbag slash housekeeping segment. All right. In response to the episode in which I interviewed Mark Shanahan about his adaptation of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, his stage adaptation of that novel... In that conversation, Mark and I talked about Noel Coward, actually. We touched on him and how there are some striking similarities between his work and Christie's. And here is what one of you wrote about that. I'm sure I won't be the only pedant pointing this out, but in my opinion, it is not remotely a stretch to think that Christie was influenced by Coward. He's one of my favorite writers, and I always felt that I could sense shades of his work in Christie. Not just The Hollow, but also Spider's Web remind me strongly of Hay Fever. Hay Fever is probably my most beloved comic play, and I've seen it and read it more times than I can count. Given its wild popularity in the early 20s, I find it hard to believe Christie didn't see it. So I was very happy to discover the appendix to Julius Green's book on Christie in the theater, where he includes an exchange between Coward and Christie. Coward wrote to her to congratulate her on beating his record for the longest-running play in the West End. Until that point, it had been Blythe Spirit, and she wrote back enthusiastically, saying she was a big fan. I don't have the book in front of me now, so I can't give you the exact words, but that was confirmation I needed that she had indeed, like so many writers, myself included, been influenced by Coward's inimitable style. Anyway, just thought I would point that out. By all means, read this on the podcast when you next do housekeeping if you feel like it. I'd love to know if any other listeners know more. That is an excellent point, listener. And yes, Julius Green does talk about this. Noel Coward and Agatha Christie definitely did know each other, and they even corresponded. And I think they had a healthy appreciation for each other. It reminds me of Christie's friendship with P.G. Woodhouse, which especially flourished a little later in her career. I have to admit, I'm not as up on my Noel Coward as Catherine Brobeck actually was. Catherine Brobeck was a huge Noel Coward fan. She loved Blythe Spirit in particular. I remember talking about Blythe Spirit on a Patreon episode with her, actually, because uh, one of the authors of the Round Robin style novel, The Floating Admiral, was, I believe, the inspiration for Madame Arcati in Blythe Spirit. I can't remember which author it was. There's so many authors, so many Golden Age authors who contributed to that novel. But she was a big fan. And I think there is a madcap energy to Coward that we also see in Christie and even in Woodhouse, right? I mean, there there is something specifically 20th century specific to that period about it in a really wonderful way. And if anyone else would like to write in and opine or muse about the topic, I would love to hear it, as would this listener. All right, next up, I have a response to the episode in which I interviewed booktuber Mara Sinclair. 
I got so many nice comments about that episode. And Mara and I discussed the golden age oddity that is Kane's jawbone. We discussed this toward the end of the episode. This is that book that comes with all of its pages out of order, which you have to reorder to solve the puzzle of what the heck is going on. <laughs> and Kane's jawbone has enjoyed a recent resurgence in popularity recently because it was reissued and it created a stir on TikTok or BookTok, the bookish corner of TikTok. So here's what one of you had to say about that. I had to write after listening to your discussion about Kane's jawbone. How could you leave out that Kane's jawbone was recently solved in 2020 by John Finnemore? John Finnemore is best known as the writer of Cabin Pressure and Souvenir Program on BBC4 Radio, and also the co-writer of the sequel to Good Omens. I have re-listened to his work almost as often as I have reread Christie. Since I read my first Christie in 1979, Peril at Enhouse, still my favorite, that is a lot of rereads. There is an homage to Agatha Christie in the Paris episode of Cabin Pressure. Give it a listen. And although it isn't a puzzle mystery, let me recommend Season 9 of John Finnemore's Souvenir Program as one of the best things ever written. You can listen to Souvenir Program on BBC Sounds, and Cabin Pressure is probably available on iTunes or somewhere, but I listen to my old-fashioned CDs. If that wasn't enough fangirling over John Finnemore, he is also writing a sequel to Kane's Jawbone. And then this listener linked to a Guardian article about that. I had no idea about any of this. I had never heard of John Finnemore until I read this message that will probably be shocking to some of you, particularly in the UK. But I just wanted to give John Finnemore a shout out. And I'm very excited to see that he's working on a sequel to Kane's Jawbone, which is going to be uh, another puzzle that the reader has to solve. But he's updating it for for the 21st century and specifically making it not Googleable. Like there's a visual aspect to it. I think it's going to be a series of postcards that you have to put together. So it's going to be what's written on one side of the postcards and then the artwork on the other side. And so in this way, it's not something where you can Google for the answers. You have to really work with it in situ or IRL. So I love that. It sounds like he's being very thoughtful about it and that it's going to be a really fun project uh, when it comes out. Okay, another message in response to my Mara Sinclair episode, uh, specifically concerning appointment with death. You're going to want to fast forward two or three minutes if you haven't yet read a couple of books here. <laughs> appointment with death or Peril at Enhouse or 450 from Paddington or After the Funeral. I am going to spoil these titles to varying degrees over the next couple of minutes, so be forewarned. Here's what this listener had to say. I was prompted to get in touch by Mara saying that she found the revelation of the identity of the murderer in Appointment with Death disappointing. Christie wrote a number of genuine closed-circle mysteries, such as The Mousetrap, Cards on the Table, and And Then There Were None, where we know exactly who the suspects are, and it's genuinely impossible for anyone else to have done it. She also wrote a number of what I would call false closed circle plots, where we are led to believe that only a select group of people could have done it, and then she produces someone from outside the circle and tells you that they did it. The most obvious example to me is Peril at Enhouse, where we are actually given a list of suspects with the letters A to J beside their names. Then it turns out to be K who actually did it. And I'm just going to pause here, listeners, in my reading of this listener's email, because this point about Peril at Enhouse dovetails really perfectly with yet another listener's message to me about Peril at Enhouse. They basically made the same point, and it's an excellent point, and I think one of the few valid criticisms of Peril at Enhouse. So real quick, here's what that other listener had to say about Peril at Enhouse. You and Catherine discussed whether or not anyone could actually solve the murder on a first read, and I will say I did. Not because I managed to decipher any clues, but because the chapter titles spoil the plot in the table of contents. 
One of the titles is something like The Person, K, which means the killer is someone not on Poirot's list of 10 suspects, and the only person that can be is Nick. So I may have cheated a bit. Not what you were looking for, I'm sure. That is not necessarily what Catherine and I were looking for uh, when we were talking about people who might have actually been able to solve Peril at House on a first read, but it's an excellent point nonetheless as to a major drawback of reading the table of contents in Peril at House. And I think reading the table of contents at the beginning of any book is totally fair game. That is not cheating at all. It feels like Christy inadvertently made it a little easy to figure out who done it by way of her table of contents. I think that's really interesting. Okay, back to the first email about false closed circles. And here comes a big ol' appointment with death. Spoiler, watch out. Christy regularly uses her family mysteries as false closed circle stories. I didn't feel upset by the revelation of Lady Westholm's guilt in Appointment with Death, as it is the reader's duty to suspect everyone. I do feel, however, that maybe it got a bit predictable after she used this trick multiple times. For example, the killer in 450 from Paddington is not one of the Krakenthorps, and the killer in After the Funeral is not one of the Abernathies. Don't know what you feel about that. Well, I feel, listener, that you have made an excellent point, and I love the idea of a false closed circle mystery. Though the way you're using it, I just want to be clear, it's not false in the physical sense, but in more of the intellectual sense. Nick is obviously among the characters who are on the scene at End House and who could have done it. The same can be said for Lady Westholm and Petra and for the killers in 450 from Paddington and after the funeral. It's not that they aren't part of the physical closed circle of suspects Christie presents to us. Uh, it's more that she tricks us into thinking the true circle of suspects doesn't include the actual culprit. So it's yet another trick in her arsenal, this false closed circle that she creates. Anyway, I thought that was a really interesting way of analyzing one aspect of Christie's puzzles, uh, and it's never come up on the podcast before. So I just wanted to share that with all of you. Next up, I have some responses to my episode about the short story In a Glass Darkly. So first, I have a response to my open query as to period pieces that Christie had written, stories that take place in the past as opposed to the present day. Since In a Glass Darkly technically is a period piece, it takes place in the past, just before the First World War. Uh, Christie was writing it many years after that. And I was noting that she doesn't really do that very often. She did it in the Poirot short story, The Chocolate Box. And I asked if there were other stories that I might be missing. Uh, some people also got in touch with me about this on Twitter because I missed a very obvious period piece of Christie's. Uh, let me just read out this listener's email. I'm just listening to the episode for In a Glass Darkly and came to the point about period Christie's. I want to start my comment mentioning that English is not my mother tongue, so I'm not sure what exactly period means, meaning if it's from the past generally or if it just refers to a certain era. But a Christie novel that takes place completely in the past is, of course, Death comes as the end. <laughs> well, listener, your English is excellent. Your understanding of what period meant in the context of my episode was spot on. Although I think you did sort of identify the reason why I forgot about Death Comes as the End, because I was really thinking of stories that Christie set in the recent-ish past, which is why I missed the very obvious period piece of Agatha Christie's, which is, yes, her novel set in ancient Egypt. 
her very early, one could perhaps even say proto-historical mystery. Historical mysteries are very popular these days, and Death Comes as the End is a very early example of that. One that I do not cherish as much as others do on this podcast, but I've mentioned this before, actually. One of you made a gift to me of a first edition of Death Comes as the End. It sits in pride of place on one of my most prominently displayed bookshelves, and I am going to have to revisit Death Comes as the End at some point and do an episode about it, similar to what I did for The Secret of Chimneys, to see if perhaps I should bump it up a few places. That was the big old string attached to the gift I received of a first edition of Death Comes as the End, which really was a lovely gift. So thank you for reminding me of the existence of that novel, listener. A number of you responded to my musings about halts in my In a Glass Darkly episode. So there's a throwaway reference to a halt in the Agatha Christie Hour adaptation of this story, which is a train stop so minor that trains don't routinely stop there or perhaps won't stop there unless a passenger directs them to do so. For this reason, they obviously tended to appear in more rural settings. And as it turns out, there was one halt in particular I failed to mention when I was considering them as a class of train stop. Here's what one of you wrote. Hi, Kemper. Regarding halts and the idiosyncrasies of the British railway system, there are apparently only two public stations left that have the word halt in their name. Combe Junction Halt and St. Keen Wishing Well Halt. I'm probably mispronouncing those names. As most of the original halts were either closed or renamed. However, there are still a fair few stations that are request stops. But there are also heritage-slash-private railway stops that are halts. The most relevant here being, drumroll, Greenway Halt! It's part of the Dartmouth Steam Railway and is a new stop that was added for the Heritage Line in 2012, so Agatha didn't have her own private station, unfortunately. Although they haven't started services to Greenway again after COVID, my mom and dad used it to visit Greenway about 10 years ago. As well as serving small villages and country houses, halts were also used for large workplaces. It turns out I used to live opposite the site of an old halt, Roundtree's Halt in York, which was a not-publicly-advertised stop for workers at the Roundtree's Chocolate Factory in York. The whole line is gone, it's now a psychopath, but was in use until 1988. And back in the fictional world, and I'll pause here and just say, if any of you have not yet read Sleeping Murder, you might want to fast-forward about 30 seconds... In Sleeping Murder, Lily Kimball is killed after she gets off the train at Matching's Halt. I'm sure there are other examples, but googling anything train-related for Christie gets a lot of murder on the Orient Express, with sprinklings of Blue Train and 450 from Paddington. Smiley face. I'm sure I remember a passage about a child feeling very important that you had to request the train to stop, but I can't remember which book it is in, if it is even Christie. Although, I was also convinced that there was a Blanding's Halt in the Woodhouse books, but that doesn't seem to exist, so maybe I'm misremembering. Well, you certainly gave us a lot of really great information, listener. Thank you so much for that. And then I just want to read out two other listeners who responded similarly. A quick note to say that one particularly relevant halt is Greenway Halt, which is how you could travel to Agatha Christie's house. In fact, you couldn't travel to Greenway in Agatha Christie's time in this way, as the halt only opened in 2012. Halts were generally unstaffed railway platforms, which didn't have any goods facilities. Sometimes they would be request stops, where trains would only stop if you flagged them down. I think we had to press a button on the platform to get the train to stop when we visited Greenway ourselves and actually stayed in the gardener's cottage. Exploring Greenway at night when all the other visitors had left was a thrill. According to the internet, trains apparently no longer stop there, which is a huge shame. Well, I do hope that the Greenway halt opens up again at some point. 
And here's what a third one of you had to say about that particular stop. Dear Kemper, I'm sure I will not be the only one to contact you about whether there are still halts as well as stations in the UK now. There are indeed. The first one that springs to mind is Greenway Halt. If you take the steam train from Paynton to Kingswear, which you might have done, you can request to stop at Greenway Halt if you want to visit Greenway itself. It's then a lovely walk through the trees to Agatha's house, something I've done with my husband and boys a couple of times. My guess is that we now only use halt to mean a request stop, one where you have to ask the guard to tell the driver you want to get off there, otherwise the train doesn't stop. I think if you want to get on at Greenway, you have to activate a signal on the platform which alerts the train driver, but I've never done it myself. We took the boat back to Dartmouth slash Kingswear. Thank you for all of that transportational information, listeners, and it really brought me back to lovely Devon and the area surrounding Greenway, and I just love being there and plan to be there again next year for the Agatha Christie Festival in September. I hope to see some of you there. All right, my next listener email is part of the ongoing conversation around Christie and food. This is actually the same listener who wrote to me about her theory that the delicious death cake in A Murder is Announced is an icebox cake. This indefatigable listener has two further food-focused points, about 450 from Paddington, actually, and I think they're both really interesting. The first has to do with that soup Lucy Islesboro makes in the book, which Karen Pierce and I discussed at some length in my interview with her about her book, Recipes for Murder, 66 Dishes That Celebrate the Mysteries of Agatha Christie. So here's what this listener had to say about that. Why is there lemon in the soup? The recipe for mushroom soup via a roux base is a very simple one, and lots of people know it. We all had to make it in school cookery class age 12. But I don't remember lemon juice in the standard recipe. I have had a quick look at some old recipes from Mrs. Beaton to current BBC, and no lemon there either. I think the lemon juice is a secret ingredient thing, aimed to underline the extra nature of Lucy's cooking. It's probably why it turns up at the end of the recipe, as if she's reluctant to let the secret out, and I think it speaks to Agatha's own love of good food. Love that point. I think you're spot on, listener. And now here is the listener's second point, which is also about 450 from Paddington. And this one is very spoilery. So fast forward a minute or two if you haven't yet read 450 from Paddington. And on the subject of extra, Lucy has made a dinner which ends in a savory. The internet tells me that this was definitely old-fashioned by the publication date. So again, it's evidence of her complete overcompetence. But what do you think the quimper recognizing Canapé's Diane is all about? Is it a micro-clue that he knows more about la vie française than we might imagine due to his secret dead French dancer wife? It has all the hallmarks of a clue. Misdirection, because the conversation is about something else. A linguistic hint, unexpectedly. And evidence of everyday knowledge of another culture. Usually, it's British English versus Americanisms. However, the ending is proved Marple-style via fishbone dramatics, so maybe there was just no space or need to highlight it? Or have I missed something? Who knows? I think it just goes to show that no matter how well you think you know a text, there's always something else there to ponder if you look from a different angle. I think you're right about that, listener, and I actually have noticed this. I think that quite often in Christie novels, because she packed them with so much puzzle apparatus, I think that quite often there are clues that go unrecognized at the end of the novel in the denouement or the trap that Miss Marple springs. However, the solution is presented to us. And I actually think that's okay. I love finding little clues or just little Phillips of clarity throughout the book that aren't highlighted or sung. It's almost like they're almost like little discoveries that close readers or rereaders can make. It's like an extra little gift 
from the mystery author to the reader. And I think Christy does it a lot, actually. And I think you found one of them. Not every obfuscation has to be cleared up at the end of a mystery novel. I, I like the idea that if we sit back and puzzle things out ourselves, we can make these sorts of discoveries by reading the text closely and reading it over and over and over again, as so many of us do. Okay, I now have just one more listener email to cover, and this message has to do with Passenger to Frankfurt. Yes, Passenger to Frankfurt. This is a rather long message, but I want to read it out because it strikes me as an impassioned yet reasoned defense of that novel, which gets so very little love from me and from most other agathologists out there. So here goes. I don't think this message really spoils anything, mainly because I don't think you can spoil a novel that doesn't make much sense in the first place. Ooh, that's a sick burn on my part, but I don't feel that bad about making it because this listener is now going to school me about how good Passenger to Frankfurt actually is. That's right. By the way, this listener is from Belgium, bien sûr. Uh, and so with apologies to him, I did do a little bit of editing just for time and smoothness of language. Here goes. I recently heard the episode about Passenger to Frankfurt. Wow. I think I sided more with Sophie Hanna. She clearly enjoyed the book, as I did. I must confess it as long ago I read it, but as a teenager, I liked it very much. For me, it is part of a genre which I think was never really popular or understood in the USA. The 1970s Euro thriller in shades of steel gray and silver. Michael Caine in cities like Zurich or Basel or indeed Frankfurt. Modern, anonymous, rich, but not ostentatious. Do you know the movie Cassandra Crossing? In a contemporary adaptation, Stafford Nye could be played by Michael Caine and Renata by Sophia Loren. The book portrays the time when the power and mentality of the high bourgeoisie was effectively destroyed in Europe, which happened a bit later in the UK, in the 1980s. It is difficult for me to explain in English, but what I missed on the podcast was a reference to May 1968, which is short for this whole upheaval of norms, power, and culture, but which is clearly referred to in the text. Agatha Christie explicitly mentions the general, which is clearly General de Gaulle, who had to abdicate, but returned gloriously in the next elections won by the right, but who died in 1970. Also, the reference to Argentina is not strange. All those top Nazis escaped to Argentina, and I think there are still some German-slash-Nazi enclaves there. Also, the complaint of Sophie Hanna about the non-specificity of the speech of Siegfried is not to the point, as the non-specificity is, in my eyes, deliberate. Agatha Christie describes in her autobiography a friend who was totally awed by speeches of Hitler, but who couldn't remember anything specific or interesting a day later. It was all air. She clearly meant the same about the Siegfried speeches, don't you think? The whole point is that there is no specificity, just nihilism and violence. The name Charlotte Crabbe is a clear reference to Bertha Krupp, the wife of Germany's main arms producer in World War I. The most heavy and dangerous cannons were nicknamed Fat Bertha. We even had a children's game, Fat Bertha, which referred to this. We played it at school in the 1970s, and perhaps children still do. Krapp and Krupp are almost the same when spoken. Passenger to Frankfurt chronicles the destruction of a certain type of society. In 1970, the jumbo jet took to the air, democratizing air travel. An airport like that of Frankfurt in the book was no longer a haven for a civilized happy few, but the playing fields for the great unwashed. Besides, you said that Agatha Christie traveled with her grandson to those festivals in Beirut and Salzburg, etc. In those days, not yet 25 years after World War II, there was much hidden under the surface and brushed under the carpet. That whole atmosphere is so clear in the book. The oddity of these soissons-witards joining with conservative Germans who at the time hadn't made peace with the past, but had chosen to ignore it. 
And this is my note here, but the Soissons Huitards are the 68ers. Soissons Huitard is literally 68ers in French. Uh, in other words, those who participated in or otherwise supported the civil unrest in France in May of 1968, which this listener already referenced. Back to his email. Don't forget that also in 1970, Willie Brandt went to his knees in Warsaw, Poland. And I will just break in here again. What this listener is referencing is the moment in 1970 that German Chancellor Willy Brandt fell to his knees at the memorial to the Warsaw Ghetto, which commemorated the courage of thousands of Jews who lost their lives in a bid to free themselves from the Germans during the Second World War. Uh, Many people saw this as a pivotal moment in terms of recognizing the horrors that had taken place during the Second World War. And I just have two more sentences here from this extremely thoughtful listener. It was very much in the air, and Agatha had it. The big sales weren't so big for nothing in those days. Thank you, listener, for your defense of Passenger to Frankfurt. I think you are right about everything that you said, actually. Passenger to Frankfurt will never be one of my favorite Christie novels. I just don't enjoy reading it as much as I do practically any other (laughs) Agatha Christie novel, with one exception. But I think it is one of those novels where the context in which it was written, its contemporary setting, is so important to understanding what Christie was trying to do. And I think it's easy to misunderstand, to misapprehend the novel outside of that context. There are so many Christie novels that are timeless. I think Passenger to Frankfurt is the rare time full (laughs) Christie novel, it really does have to be situated in the time in which it was written. And if it is going to be appreciated, I think there does have to be a greater understanding of the time in which it was written. So thank you, listener, for providing a bit of that context that the novel requires. And I never knew about the real world analog to Charlotte being Bertha Krupp. That's really interesting. I appreciate that factoid. Love a good factoid. All right. That was a fantastic mailbag slash housekeeping segment. Please do keep those messages coming. Email me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. I love hearing from all of you. I don't always respond as quickly as I would like to, but I really do try to respond and respond substantively to everyone who reaches out to me about the podcast and about Agatha Christie. And it brings me great joy when I get every single one of those emails. Please know that. It is time at long last to talk about The Naughty Donkey by Agatha Christie Mallowan. Sarah Hinlicky Wilson and I talked about what a personal collection of stories this was for Christie, whose Christian faith was so very important to her. I am just going to note that now you can listen to Sarah and me talking about this at greater length when we cover Star Over Bethlehem directly after this story, because again, I am going to be rerunning that episode after I finish discussing The Naughty Donkey. So stay tuned for that. As for publication history, Star Over Bethlehem and Other Stories was first published by Collins, though not Collins Crime Club, on the 1st of November, 1965. It was published in the same year in the U.S. by Dodd Mead. And The Naughty Donkey appears within this collection. It's the second story within this collection. And there are also poems interspersed throughout the collection. We get story poem, story poem, story poem. Uh, It's just a lovely, slim little collection of religious tales and poems. Sarah and I discussed the publication history of this collection at some length when we covered Star Over Bethlehem. So given that you're going to hear that discussion directly after this one, I think less is more here. (laughs) We do know that the titular short story, Star Over Bethlehem, was written about 20 years prior to the publication of this collection. My sense is that the Naughty Donkey and all the other stories in the collection were written specifically for the publication of the collection. But I do not have any hard evidence 
evidence to back up that sense. If anyone out there has any information to back up my claim or to refute my claim, please let me know. I would love to hear from you. Okay, let's just talk about the world as it is. I am not going to do a mystery breakdown here because we really don't have one in this very short, short story, but there is a lot to discuss. So we open with the following. Once upon a time, there was a very naughty little donkey. And I think with this first line, Christy is putting us on notice that this is very much a fairy tale. It's a bedtime story. She certainly doesn't begin her mysteries and thrillers this way. Also, I am so steeped in Christy that immediately upon reading this opening sentence, I wrote in the margins of my book, in pencil, don't freak out, Rosalind Bedtime Story. Because I remembered that Christy used to tell her daughter a bedtime story about a certain naughty animal. And here is what she wrote about that in her autobiography. Rosalind had been given dolls, a doll's house, and various other toys, but she only really cared for animals. She had a silk creature called Blue Teddy and another called Red Teddy, and these were joined later by a much larger, rather sickly mauve teddy bear called Edward Bear. Of these three, Rosalind loved with a complete and utter passion, Blue Teddy. He was a limp animal made of blue stockinette silk with black eyes set flat into his flat face. He accompanied her everywhere, and I had to tell stories about him every night. The stories concerned both Blue Teddy and Red Teddy. Every night they had a fresh adventure. Blue Teddy was good, and Red Teddy was very, very naughty. Red Teddy did some splendidly naughty things, such as putting glue on the schoolteacher's chair so that when she sat down, she could not get up again. One day, he put a frog in the schoolteacher's pocket, and she screamed and had hysterics. These tales met with great approval, and frequently I had to repeat them. Blue Teddy was of a nauseating and priggish virtue. He was top of his class in school and never did a naughty deed of any kind. Every day when the boys left for school, Red Teddy promised his mother that he would be good today. On their return, their mother would ask, Have you been a good boy, Blue Teddy? Yes, mummy, very good. That's my dear boy. Have you been good, Red Teddy? No, mummy, I have been very naughty. On one occasion, Red Teddy had gone fighting with some bad boys and come home with an enormous black eye. A piece of fresh steak was put on it, and he was sent to bed. Later, Red Teddy blotted his copybook still further by eating the piece of steak that had been placed on his eye. Nobody could have been more delightful to tell stories to than Rosalind. She chuckled, laughed, and appreciated every minor point. I love that. I also talk on this podcast a lot about how Christy never wanted to be a possessive mother, and how it seems like, although we'll never know for sure, she kept her daughter at a bit more of an arm's length than what we're used to these days, perhaps especially these days when parents tend to hover over their children. But let's just take a moment to appreciate that passage, which shows that Christy was indeed a doting and attentive mother. It's just a really lovely anecdote. And she's such a good writer. She just conjures up the scene. I can see her telling these bedtime stories to Rosalind, which is why I remembered it when I started the story. I should also note that this isn't the first time Christy has written a story from an animal's point of view. We do get the donkey's direct thoughts here <laughs> in The Naughty Donkey. And we, of course, get Bob the dog's thoughts in her novel Dumb Witness. And we also get a dog's thoughts in her final novel that she wrote, anyway, Postern of Fate, that also includes some text from the doggy point of view. I will be honest, I don't really love when Christy does this in her mysteries, but I was okay with it here. I was very much down with the naughty donkey. How naughty is this donkey? Well, 
This donkey is so naughty, it keeps getting sold over and over again to different owners who do not know what to do with it till, and now I'm quoting from the text, finally he was sold for a few pence to a dreadful old man who bought old worn out donkeys and killed them by overwork and ill treatment, end quote. I suppose this is a slight spoiler, but given that we are in the ancient Middle East here, it's interesting that people were using these suspiciously British sounding pence to buy and sell animals, but I digress. Similar to that naughty bear of Rosalind's, this spirited donkey is having none of it. He bites his latest cruel owner and runs away, kicking up his heels. And then the naughty donkey joins in with a caravan of animals and people who are on their way to Bethlehem. Uh, he figures there's safety in numbers, and this is how he ends up in a nice, cool stable with an ox and a camel. Now, I am sure a number of you listening grew up with nativity scenes or creches in your house around the holidays. Just in case you don't know what I'm talking about, however, these are scenes depicting the birth of Jesus in the traditional stable with the traditional manger and lots of animals and shepherds and Joseph and Mary surrounding the baby. Usually the three wise men are there as well, bearing their gifts. Putting together the family crash is an extremely common thing to do around Christmas time for Christian households. My parents both grew up Irish Catholic. Uh, we had a crash that came out every year. I can still easily picture it in my head. They still have it to this day. And it's just a fact that a traditional part of the nativity scene in that stable involves a donkey, an ox, and a camel, and a bunch of sheep. There are always a bunch of animals surrounding the people in this scene. And yet, there isn't actually any mention of animals at the birth of Jesus in the Bible. I am going to quote now from an article written by J.C. Warren, who is a lecturer in biblical and religious studies from the University of Sheffield. Here is what he has to say on the matter. Only two parts of the Bible talk about Jesus's birth, the Gospels of Luke and Matthew. Mark and John skip over Jesus's infancy and head straight to his adult life. So how similar are the narratives of Matthew and Luke to the version familiar to anyone who has attended a Christmas church service or children's nativity play? Christmas carols such as Away in a Manger sing about the cattle lowing, and in Little Drummer Boy they keep time. There's even a song called Little Donkey about the beast that carries Mary to Bethlehem in our vision of the Christmas story. But do these images appear in the actual Gospels? All of our stable and manger imagery actually comes from just one Gospel, Luke's. In Matthew's gospel, Mary and Joseph seem to already live in Bethlehem, and Jesus is born in a house. The Magi, the three wise kings, visit Jesus in this version. Luke, however, gives us an account of the long journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem and the visit of the shepherds. The first animal we might expect to meet in the Christmas story is the dutiful donkey, the faithful beast of burden carrying the pregnant Mary on its back. But you may want to sit down, dear reader, for this next part. Mary did not ride to Bethlehem on a donkey. Nowhere in any gospel does it say that Mary did anything but walk. The whole journey is given in three lines. Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem, and while they were there, she went into labor. No mention of transportation. That is so interesting. And I have to say, so far, Christy is acquitting herself pretty well in this story, because she definitely does not depict Mary riding this naughty donkey <laughs> into Bethlehem. The donkey comes to Bethlehem on his own, and he merely shows up in the stable before Joseph and Mary have even gotten there. Although I should add, according to this scholar, J.C. Warren, it's not even clear that Mary and Joseph were in a stable when she gave birth. Here's Warren again. Luke says Mary put the baby Jesus in a manger, but the place where she gave birth was not necessarily a stable. 
Mixed-use space where domestic animals, such as sheep and cattle, shared living and eating quarters with humans was the norm in the area at the time. So it would have been normal for Joseph's relatives to share space with their animals. Very, very interesting. So then how did the donkey get into all these carols and paintings and stories, right? Quoting once again from Warren, So if the Bible is surprisingly silent about the animal's role in the night's events, where do they all come from? The answer is that Luke's version won over the imaginations of lots of early Christian writers, although with some differences. An early gospel story that didn't make it into the Bible, known as the Proto-Gospel of James, was written in the 2nd century AD and describes in great detail Joseph and Mary's journey in Jesus' birth away from the comforts of home. It's here that we finally get our loyal donkey. The text says that Joseph saddles up a donkey and puts Mary on it to ride the long journey to register in the census. James sets the birth in a cave the couple pass on their way, rather than a domestic space. Mary says to her betrothed, Joseph, take me down from the donkey. The child inside me is pressing on me to come out. Joseph leaves Mary in the unoccupied cave and goes off to find a midwife. A later Latin text from the 7th to 8th century AD, called the Gospel of Pseudo-Matthew, takes James's version of the nativity story and elaborates on it. In this version, Mary leaves the cave after Jesus is born and takes him to a stable. Finally, the famous ox and ass enter into the scene, bowing down to worship Jesus. This well-known scene is still immortalized on Christmas cards thousands of years later, but it was never included in the Bible text. Very interesting, and I'll be honest with all of you, I had no idea that this animal imagery never appeared in the Bible until I was doing my research for this very episode. But of course, to a certain extent, it doesn't matter what's in the Bible per se, since the animals at the nativity are part of the Christian tradition at this point. And that is what Christie is accessing here as a practicing Christian interested in telling a recognizably Christian story. There's no question that this is a story written by someone who grew up singing the carols and hearing all the cherished apocryphal stories and viewing all the religious artwork and iconography that includes all these animals in the nativity. The donkey is very much a part of the cultural Christian tradition that Christie is very much a part of. And if you want more on that point, make sure you listen to the second half of this episode where my co-host Sarah talks at length about Agatha Christie the Christian and how this short story collection functions as proof of her Christian faith. Okay, so the donkey is in the stable with the camel and the ox, and the camel is being a total snob, which isn't surprising since we all know camels are total pills. All that spitting, am I right? Christie writes, The camel was very haughty, like all camels, because camels think that they alone know the hundredth and secret name of God. Right, right, right. I was going to mention that too. All the spitting and all the knowing the hundredth and secret name of God. Am I right? (laughs) Just like a camel. So the donkey does what many of us do when we're feeling defensive around snobby people, and he starts to overcompensate. In other words, he begins to boast. I am a very unusual donkey, he says. I have foresight and hindsight. What is that? said the ox. I guess the ox wasn't too much of a snob. The ox apparently has no problem talking to the donkey. And the donkey replies, like my forelegs in front of me and my hind legs behind me. Why, my great, great 37th time great grandmother belonged to the prophet Balaam and saw with her own eyes the angel of the Lord. 
And now this is where, once again, Christy is showing that she has real knowledge of the Bible here because now she is drawing on an Old Testament story. And I'm not going to get into the weeds of this too much, but suffice to say that Balaam is indeed a prophet who God thwarts. God does not want Balaam to complete his journey to Moab. So while this prophet is on his way to Moab, God sends an angel down to divert him. The only problem is that Balaam cannot see this angel. But you know who can see the angel? The donkey that the prophet is riding. And so the first time the angel appears, the donkey veers off the path to Moab, but Balaam beats the donkey and forces it back on the path. This happens again and then again. And it's after the third beating that the donkey turns to Balaam and speaks to him. Something along the lines of, uh, dude, why do you keep hitting me? That's how I imagine it anyway. And at that point, the point at which this donkey is literally speaking to Balaam, the prophet's eyes are opened, he sees the angel, and he repents of his actions. Uh, That is by no means the end of Balaam's story, but as I said, I will not be getting into the weeds of that, lest we be here all day. Clearly, the donkey was a key part of this Old Testament story, and I think it's really clever of Christy to connect that donkey to the naughty donkey here who is present at the birth of Jesus, because that, of course, is precisely what is going on in this stable, and we witness the birth of Jesus through the donkey's eyes which is pretty amusing since the donkey isn't all that impressed by the goings-on. Here's what Christy writes. Then a man and a woman came in, and there was a lot of fuss, but the donkey soon found out that there was nothing to fuss about, only a woman going to have a baby, which happens every day. And after the baby was born, some shepherds came and made a fuss of the baby, but shepherds are very simple folk. But then some men in long, rich robes came. VIPs, hissed the camel. What's that? asked the donkey. Very important people, said the camel bringing gifts. The donkey thought the gifts might be something good to eat, so when it was dark, he began nosing around. But the first gift was yellow and hard, with no taste. The second made the donkey sneeze, and when he licked the third, the taste was nasty and bitter. What stupid gifts, said the donkey, disappointed. (laughs) So far, so funny. But then, as the donkey is standing there by the manger, the baby catches hold of its ear, and it's at this point that the naughty donkey has a change of heart. Here's Christy again. And then a very odd thing happened. The donkey didn't want to be naughty anymore. For the first time in his life, he wanted to be good. And he wanted to give the baby a gift. But he hadn't anything to give. The baby seemed to like his ear, but the ear was part of him. And then another strange idea came to him. Perhaps he could give the baby himself. And it isn't long before the donkey has a chance to put his good intentions into action because Mary's partner, Joseph, is visited by a stranger who the donkey recognizes as an angel of the Lord, though he doesn't trust his own eyes. Dear, dear, I'm seeing things, the donkey says to himself. It must be all that fodder I ate. (laughs) Again, Christy being lightly humorous here. The conversation between Joseph and the stranger takes place off page, but anyone familiar with the story of Jesus's birth will know that this stranger is telling Joseph about King Herod, whose intention is to kill the newborn Jesus, since Jesus is, after all, the newborn king, and in this way, a threat to Herod. It's interesting that Christie has this stranger appear to Joseph IRL, (laughs) as opposed to in a dream, which I think is the more standard version of this part of the story. I at least remembered it as a vision that Joseph has. But this, of course, keeps the donkey squarely in the action if he's able to witness the interaction between Joseph and the stranger. Christie's story sense never airs. 
So Joseph and Mary and their baby hightail it out of there. They load up their things and they leave riding on that donkey. And I love this detail Christy adds, just so we don't think less of Joseph for taking a donkey who, after all, was not Joseph's own donkey, since this naughty donkey came to them by way of running away from the last owner who paid for him. Joseph says, we will take this donkey here and leave money for his owner, whoever he may be. Cool, cool, cool. I love that she's still worried about wrapping up plot points, even in a religious tale a few pages long. She never leaves a loose end, that Agatha Christie. So the family leaves, and this image of Mary riding on the donkey is one that we see in a lot of artwork. It's definitely an image that comes easily to my mind, though I'm sure I'm also conflating it with Mary riding the donkey on her way to give birth to Jesus, which Christie does not include as part of this story, as I mentioned previously. Anyway, here is what Christie writes about their journey away from Bethlehem. So they went out on the road from Bethlehem. But as they came to a narrow place, the angel of the Lord appeared with a flaming sword, and the donkey turned aside and began to climb the hillside. Joseph tried to turn him back onto the road, but Mary said, Let him be. Remember the prophet Balaam. And just as they got to the shelter of some olive trees, the soldiers of King Herod came clattering down the road with drawn swords. Just like my great-grandmother, said the donkey, very pleased with himself. I wonder if I have foresight as well. And here is where we get our little surprise, listeners, just the faintest hint of a Christie twist in the end of our story. Because at this point, the donkey does begin to see into the future. He makes good on his boast. And here is what he sees. I'm just going to read out the final lines of the story. I basically read almost the entire story out by way of excerpts. That's how short it is. But here goes. (laughs) He blinked his eyes and he saw a dim picture, a donkey fallen into a pit and a man helping to pull it out. Why, it's my master, grown up to be a man, said the donkey. Then he saw another picture, the same man riding on a donkey into a city. Of course, said the donkey, he's going to be crowned king. But the crown seemed to be not gold, but thorns. The donkey loved thorns and thistles, but it seemed the wrong thing for a crown. And there was a smell he knew and feared, the smell of blood. And there was something on a sponge, bitter like the myrrh he had tasted in the stable. And the little donkey knew suddenly that he didn't want foresight anymore. He just wanted to live for the day, to love his little master and be loved by him, and to carry him and his mother safely to Egypt. The end. And this is so great here. I love this little twist ending here because Christy is actually tying together yet two more scriptural references to a donkey. The image of Jesus pulling a donkey out of a pit is from the book of Luke, chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, which involves the healing of a man on the Sabbath. Here is the relevant passage. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Interestingly, in some versions of this biblical text, it's a son or an ox, not a donkey or an ox. 
that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day who would immediately be pulled out. Uh, Christy obviously opted for the donkey version here for maximal donkey references. The idea is that regardless of the rules, we all show compassion when called upon to do so. Or to put it another way, we can use our heads in concert with our hearts and thereby do good deeds. I can easily see Christy really responding to that lesson, so it's no surprise to me that she chose to highlight this anecdote within the New Testament. And then that final vision of the donkey brings up this image of Jesus riding a donkey as he enters Jerusalem in the days leading up to his crucifixion. Now, unlike the donkey at the scene of Jesus's birth, there is a ton of biblical evidence for the donkey's presence here at the end of Jesus's earthly life. We've got references in the book of Matthew and the book of John to Jesus entering Jerusalem, humble and mounted on a donkey. And this event in the New Testament actually fulfills a prophecy from the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah, in which it's mentioned that a king will come to his people riding on a donkey. Uh, Christians actually celebrate Jesus's arrival in Jerusalem every year on Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before Easter. Uh, Fun fact, but it's called Palm Sunday because apparently the crowd who greeted Jesus upon his arrival while riding that donkey waved palm branches at him in greeting. And there seems to be a fair amount of scholarly consensus around the idea that by riding a donkey instead of a horse, Jesus proclaimed himself to be a king of peace as opposed to a king of war, since the donkey was associated with peace. A king intent on conquering or some other aggressive activity would definitely have ridden a horse rather than a donkey. It's So it's not that he's being unkingly by entering Jerusalem on a donkey, more that he's clarifying the type of king, the type of leader that he is, i.e. a kind and gentle and welcoming one. I find it interesting that Christie doesn't really dwell on this triumphant entrance into Jerusalem. She really just mentions it in half a sentence and then pivots to the crucifixion which of course took place a few days after Jesus's arrival in Jerusalem. That would be the few days that elapse each year between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. Christy mentions the crown of thorns, of course, but she even includes that little detail about a sponge on which there was something bitter like the myrrh he had tasted in the stable. And that would be a sponge soaked in vinegar, which according to both the books of Mark and Matthew was offered to Jesus by a bystander on a reed for him to drink. And I'm not quite done talking about donkeys and Jesus and the Bible, because here too, we have a rich cultural tradition of a donkey being present at the crucifixion, though nothing is said about this in the Bible. Uh, And here's another fun fact for you. If you look at a donkey from above so that you're looking at its back straight on, like if you were hovering over it, if you were on a drone, say, um, there's a ridge of hair that runs the length of its back in the middle. And this ridge intersects another ridge at the donkey's shoulders, making a cross. Every donkey actually has a cross on its back. And legend has it that this cross exists on the donkey's back due to the role the donkey played in trying to help Jesus during his ordeal on the mount during the crucifixion. Legend has it that the same donkey who Jesus rode into Jerusalem a few days earlier stuck with him as Jesus went to Calvary and endured the crucifixion on the mount there. This donkey apparently stood loyally behind the cross, and as the sun went down, the shadow of the cross fell onto the donkey's back, which is why every donkey now has a cross on its back. 
So I think we could see from all these biblical associations whether or not they are actually in the literal text of the Bible, a few of them are, a few of them aren't, that the donkey is renowned for its humility, patience, loyalty, and even its obedience, because that really is what this naughty donkey ends up being, obedient to the human who becomes its rightful owner and who the donkey is happy to serve. And this is very much the way Jesus himself talks about serving God, which is so central to the message of Christianity. And it's something that we know Christy took very seriously. And I just love how she ties together all of these reference points between donkeys and the story of Jesus. It's masterfully and thoughtfully and beautifully done. And it's also so great how she begins by flipping the traditional notion of a donkey being obedient and patient and loyal and having such humility, how she flips that idea on its head by starting off with a naughty donkey and then ending up in this more traditional or conventional place vis-a-vis the donkey and Jesus. She's so nimble here with her storytelling and her scriptural knowledge. And again, Sarah Hinlicky Wilson and I talked about this when we covered Star Over Bethlehem, as you'll hear in just a minute or two. But I love how we can really get a sense of this other aspect of Christy, the person, which we don't really get in any of her mystery books. And before I go now and rerun that discussion of Star Over Bethlehem with Sarah and Leakey Wilson, I just want to point out that both these stories, Star Over Bethlehem and The Naughty Donkey, are fascinated by the contrast between the idyllic nature of Jesus's birth and what would happen to him later. The pain and turmoil of being branded a criminal and then ultimately being crucified. Christie seems to take real joy in celebrating the peacefulness of his birth while never losing sight of what came later, because it's what came later that imbues the birth with so much significance. And she does it in such a writerly way, matching the detail of what the myrrh tasted like when the donkey was getting a sense of the mouthfeel of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh in the nativity scene, taking that detail of what the myrrh tasted like and then matching it to the taste of the vinegar-soaked sponge at the crucifixion. That is a really effective detail there that brings these two very different scenes together. And what better time than Christmas to celebrate what Christy accomplishes in these two Christian and Christmas-infused Christy Tales. This episode is brought to you by BritBox. It's Britmas season, people! That most wonderful time of the year when, if you wish, you can check out all sorts of Christmas specials on BritBox from your favorite shows like Death in Paradise and Sister Boniface. You could also skip right on past the Christmas fair if that's not your thing. Go old school, binge some Poirot, catch up with Miss Marple, you know the drill. Or you could check out Archie, a brand new limited series and a BritBox original starring Jason Isaacs as Archie Leach, the man who became Cary Grant, a dramatic grit to glamour transformation. I love that phrase, grit to glamour, that led him to become the most famous person in the world. And it is only available on BritBox. So sign up for BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites from any device. I have a special limited time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan. But only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code Agatha at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Use promo code Agatha at BritBox.com.
welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I am Kemper Donovan, and today, dear listeners, we are doing something rather different. We are going to get a little personal today about Agatha Christie because we are going to talk about her religious faith and her personal religious beliefs. But we are going to do that within uh, the podcast's usual framework of discussing a story that Agatha Christie wrote. That short story is Star Over Bethlehem, and I am both thrilled and relieved that I am not going to be doing this alone. Yes, I have a guest co-host for you today who is much better qualified than I am to be speaking about all these religious matters. My co-host is Sarah Hinlicky wilson a writer, a professor, a pastor, a fellow podcaster, and most importantly, a huge Agatha Christie fan. Sarah got her master's degree in divinity and her PhD in systematic theology at Princeton Theological Seminary. Currently, she is living in Japan and serving as a pastor at the Tokyo Lutheran Church. She's published hundreds of articles in places like Christianity Today, The Christian Century, Books and Culture, etc., etc. She's written a memoir and a number of scholarly books. She's also edited and contributed to a whole bunch more. Recently, she wrote a long article I absolutely devoured on Miss Marple's low anthropology, which I will definitely be asking her about because her article contains a wholly convincing and wholly original hypothesis for why murder mysteries are as enduringly popular as they are. We have so much to discuss. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Kemper. I can't even tell you how excited I am to be a part of this after listening with rapt attention to All About Agatha, both the public one and the Patreon one for lo these many years. So thank you for responding positively to my email asking, could I possibly come on your podcast and be a part (laughs) of your glory for a while? Yes, and I I left out that important piece of information that Sarah is also a patron. So, uh, you know, all that wonderful bonus content. Look at look at what a patronage of this podcast can lead to. <laughs> a guest <laughs> totally. <co-host> spot. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to be discussing, as I said up top, a number of things, but let's get right into the story that we'll be focusing on, which is Star Over Bethlehem. Now, the title of this story marks it out as having a religious theme. Bethlehem is, of course, widely recognized and celebrated as the birthplace of Jesus. And to this day, the city does a booming business, especially around the Christmas holiday. This is a little bit our Christmas in summer episode. Perhaps this is a slightly strange time to be doing this episode, but I like it. It's warm, at least here up in uh, the the Northern Hemisphere, and we can think about Christmas and Christmassy things at this time of year as well. It always makes me happy. So the star over Bethlehem uh, itself is mentioned in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, uh, where a bright star is said to have appeared in the eastern sky when Jesus was born. And then the three wise men or magi notice this star and they make their journey to the baby Jesus with their three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I'm sure many of you have heard this. Christy herself makes reference to the three wise men and their gifts at numerous points throughout her oeuvre. But always incidentally, except for this story, this is a rare example of a story-centered religious theme. 
So let's talk a little bit about publication history before we get into the story proper. Star Over Bethlehem, the short story, is the titular story in the collection Star Over Bethlehem and Other Stories, which is an illustrated book of poetry and short stories that all have religious and specifically Christian themes. The book was published late in Christie's career when I imagine she was able to prevail more easily on her publishers to publish whatever the heck she wanted to. Uh, in the <laughs> UK, sure. it was published by Collins, not Collins Crime Club, but still by Collins on the 1st of November, 1965, just two weeks before at Bertram's Hotel, which was the Christie for Christmas. But this was the Christmas Christie, <laughs> which is what Ooh, the little... I see what you did there. Right? Yeah, it's what the little dust jacket on my my copy says it says a christmas christie the perfect little gift and indeed it is <laughs> so according to christie biographer janet morgan the book was well received and it was one of the few instances in which agatha actually liked getting requests for autographed copies that makes a lot of sense to me given what an obviously personal book this is you don't write a slim volume of christian themed stories and poems when you're a best-selling mystery author unless you want to in my copy the star over bethlehem portion of the book because it actually includes a number of poems in addition to the Star Over Bethlehem volume. That part of the book is just 81 pages. So this is a really slim volume here that she put out. And even though it was well-received and it did well, I have to imagine it was not the bestseller that at Bertram's Hotel and all of her other books at this point in her career always were. I do know that the short story Star Over Bethlehem was actually written well before it was published in book form. Uh, Janet Morgan mentions that Christie's agent Edmund Cork had arranged for its publication at Christmas in an American magazine all the way back in 1947. Unfortunately, Janet Morgan did not mention which magazine, so I do not know. Uh, and Wikipedia, yes, I'm treading lightly here, but I am using Wikipedia here as a source. There is a mention there of a UK publication one year earlier in December 1946 in journal. So those seem to be the serial publications of this short story specifically. My sense is that Star Over Bethlehem is the only one of these six stories in the collection to have been published prior to the book collection. But that's just my sense. I'm happy to be proven wrong on that score. And if anyone has any other information, please let me know. There is not a ton of academic scholarship surrounding this book, at least among the sources that I traditionally consult uh, when I'm doing these episodes. So if anyone has more information, as always, I would really, really love to benefit from it. Interestingly, this collection is written not by Agatha Christie, but by Agatha Christie Mallowan. And that is another indicator that this story and all the stories in the collection fall outside the purview of Christie's usual output. The only other book to have been written by Agatha Christie Mallowan was her 1946 memoir, Come Tell Me How You Live. Catherine Brobeck and I covered that in a Patreon bonus episode. Now that I think about it, it's actually curious to me that her autobiography, which of course was published posthumously, wasn't also written by Agatha Christie Mallowan, because that kind of would have made sense but my guess is that it was so closely associated with her mysteries, her publisher thought that would have been confusing. I wonder if Christie herself would have insisted on that had she been alive. Maybe not. Maybe it was always going to be by Agatha Christie without the Mallowan. But that would be consistent, I think, if her autobiography were written by Agatha Christie Mallowan, because that really is the name that I think she identified as her personal name. This collection was, of course, also published in the U.S. in the same year, in 1965, by Dodd Mead. 
I should note that this is the Rare Christie book that comes with illustrations. There are these lovely pencil sketches in gray and gold done by Elise Wrigley. I think they're very understated and tasteful. I quite liked them. They do appear in my copy of the book that I read. Uh, Apparently, Christie was also a fan. For once, as reported by Janet Morgan, she was actually happy with the jacket and illustration that Collins proposed. They did not have to fight (laughs) or haggle over uh, any little issues. So this collection features six short stories and five poems. And as I mentioned, Sarah and I will be focusing on Star Over Bethlehem specifically, which in addition to being the titular story is also the first story in the collection. I may cover some of these other stories and poems in future episodes, but I think Star Over Bethlehem is by far the best of the bunch. Not that there isn't a lot to discuss about the others, just know that one of these other stories is written from the point of view of a donkey, and another one is set in the year 2000. That's right, it's set in the future, our past now, but uh, that was very, very interesting. So I encourage Christie fans to read this book because they are some interesting outlier stories written by Agatha Christie. One final note before we get into the story properly, Sometimes this volume is paired with Christie's other poems. That is the case in the copy that I read. So I'd just like to acknowledge that in addition to the five poems that appear in this collection, Christie actually published two other books of poetry. The first book was very early on in 1924 in a volume called The Road of Dreams that she seems to have pretty much self-published. And then very late in her career in 1973, we have a book simply called Poems. So please know I plan to discuss the poetry of Agatha Christie in a more robust way in a future episode or episodes. I am now officially going to shut up. (laughs) And before we get into our usual breakdown, is there anything that you'd like to add, Sarah? Well, I should just say how I discovered this book, because obviously I think it's not a well-known part of Agatha's oeuvre, but I believe it was on agathachristie.com when I was like trying to print out, you know, like all the Miss Marples in order. So I was sure to to cover (laughs) them all for the article that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I think I just saw there this Christmas thing and I was like, oh, that's intriguing. And yeah, so that's why I ended up reading it and being like, okay, now I, I've heard everybody say biographers and fans and everyone else, like Agatha was a woman of very deep faith. And I think we can all like feel that in the texture of her writing, but it's very hard to like get the hard evidence. So I've sort of been in my own like detective mode, looking for the clues that she was really as religious as everyone seems to assume she is. And um, one of the reasons I got so excited about this book and reached out to you about it is because it has very hard evidence, textual evidence that she really, really, really knew the Bible well and the Christian tradition so well that she could play around with it, experiment with it, reconfigure things as we're going to see in the story we're talking about. So yeah, so as as of my own sort of detective of her religiosity, that's why I think this is a really fascinating book to read in her whole set of works. Yeah, I think I love that. I think that's going to be a running theme of our discussion that it's this thing that everyone seems to know about Christie and almost assume, right? Like we know right. she was a churchgoer. We know she was a pretty traditional person in a lot of ways. So I think there's just this general assumption that, well, I'm sure she was also a devoutly Christian person, but for a writer that has this, you know, vast output, where is the evidence? Well, here is the evidence in this very story. Here it is. Uh, as, as we will be discussing. All right. So let's get into it and discuss our victim. 
this is a little difficult. And I just want to make clear here at the outset, because we are talking about a, a deeply religious story. I am not trying to be blasphemous here or otherwise insensitive or offensive even to Christian readers. But given that this story is steeped in the Bible and in, you know, the chronicling of Jesus's life, I have to say that the victim here is really Jesus himself. As many will know, Jesus was a man whose death was brought about by way of public crucifixion on a cross. But we're not going to be talking a lot about that because in Christie's spin on this story, and, and just as you were saying, Sarah, because she obviously knew this story so very well, she actually had you know, the wherewithal to play around with it in an interesting way. What Christie does here is that we have what I would call an attempted murder of Jesus, not as the middle-aged man who was crucified, but as an innocent newborn baby. All will be explained. Let's talk a little bit about some suspects. We really only have two other named characters in this story. There is a brief cameo by Joseph at the end, but blink and you miss him. So (laughs) (laughs) in a way, I think we can consider both of these characters suspects in the attempted demise of baby Jesus. Could you take our first suspect, Sarah? Sure. So shockingly enough, at least where the gospel story is concerned, but perhaps not shockingly where an Agatha Christie story is concerned, the first suspect is Mary. That's right. Jesus' own mother, Uh, which is interesting also because Mary functions really as the detective in the story or the investigator. But, you know, in uh, Agatha Christie's story, just because you are the point of view character or the detective doesn't mean you can't possibly be the murderer. You can be both. So Mary is, is our first and primary suspect. Assume nothing in Christie, even in Star Over Bethlehem, <laughs> her, her whole <laughs> story. Yes. Exactly. All right. Our second suspect is a presence referred to mainly in this story as the angel. That would be with a capital T and a capital A, the angel. This angel comes to Mary and makes her an offer that she very well may not be able to refuse. We will get into it as we enter the world as it appears to be. So we open on what will be recognizable to even the most casual of observers of Christmas, and that would be the nativity scene. Mary is in the stable. She's smiling at her baby in the manger. All the animals are around her. Joseph isn't there. He, you know, he popped out <laughs> for some for some groceries or something. I'm not exactly sure where he is, but again, he does make a cameo at the end of the story, but he is largely absent here. An angel, the angel, appears, shining, quote, with the radiance of the morning sun, and the beauty of his face was so great that Mary's eyes were dazzled and she had to turn aside her head, end quote. So picking it up from there, you know, having an angel show up to Mary, that's not surprising. And being overwhelmed (laughs) by the presence of the angel, that's not surprising. She's like, been there, done Um, that, right? (laughs) Yeah, right, right. But of course, you know, again, if you're a close reader of the Bible story, this is not the time or place for the angel to appear. So this is this is Christie's innovation now. So the angel says in a voice like a golden trumpet, do not be afraid. Okay, that's proof he's an angel. That's always the first thing the angel says, right? Fear not. And she replies uh, in good, uh, humble Mary fashion, I am not afraid, O holy one of God, but the light of your countenance dazzles me. And then she asks to hear the commands of the Lord God. But then, very interestingly, the angel says, I have come with no commands, but since you are specially dear to God, 
It is permitted that with my aid, you should look into the future. And this is very interesting because he calls on when Gabriel comes to Mary at the Annunciation says, hail Mary, full of grace. So like this angel is echoing that previous angels address to her. Mm. Well, this is exciting now. His future meaning that she can look at baby Jesus future. So of course she would say yes. What mother wouldn't want to look into her newborn son's promising future. So they join hands and the angels feels like touching flame yet flame that did not burn. She's a little worried by this, but he assures her, don't be afraid. My touch won't hurt you. The difference is that the angel is immortal, but Mary is not. So we then cut to uh, what the reader can infer to be the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays between his last supper and his arrest. This is a scene, you know, a tableau known to many a devout Christian. Mary's maternal heart recognizes her son and is thankful that he has become a good man, a devout man. He prays to God. But then he shows his face and she saw the agony on it, the despair and the sorrow, and she knew that she was looking on greater anguish than any she had ever known or seen. For the man was utterly alone. He was praying to God, praying that his cup of anguish might be taken from him, and there was no answer to his prayer. God was absent and silent. So obviously, this is not what is supposed to happen, right? With everything that Mary has been promised by Gabriel, but just in general, like any pious mother hoping for her son, like why would God have abandoned her boy when he's in this great anguish and needs God so badly? So now she turns to the angel and asks, why doesn't God comfort him? And the angel says, in you know, that kind of uh, riddling way that angels have, <laughs> it is not God's purpose that he should have comfort, which basically explains nothing whatsoever. But, you know, Mary gets this. She accepts it and says, OK, it is not for us to know the inscrutable purposes of God. But has this man, my son, has he no friends? So this is interesting. Mary can accept that, you know, sometimes God does hard things, but surely her, her good son who prays should have some friends. So then the angel points her to another part of the garden where she sees the sleeping disciples as we know them to be. And she reacts rather bitterly, as a mother might, at the indifference of her son's friends to his plight. But the angel's more merciful than she is, says, well, come on, they're only fallible human creatures. So Mary can only fall back on, all right, well, God is silent and his friends are asleep, but at least I know that he is a good man, my son, a good and upright man. She can comfort herself with that. So the scene then changes, and Mary sees three criminals headed for execution, carrying their crosses, followed by a crowd and Roman soldiers. She sees the bestial face of one of the criminals and concludes, yes, certainly he is a criminal. He looks like a bad man, as you know, potentially problematic it is to imagine someone looks like a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> but then she recognizes one of these other people carrying the cross, and it's her son. And she cries, no, no, it cannot be that my son is a criminal. Then the scene shifts again. These are obviously like rapid changing scenes, the angel showing Mary. And now she sees him nailed to and hanging on the cross. And in this moment, she comes right for the time where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, let me just jump in here as the religious detective of Agatha's faith. 
that she had options for what she was going to show Jesus saying on the cross. He says several things from the cross, but if she wants to get like the last words of Jesus, Agatha actually had three options. So she could have gone to the gospel of Luke, where Jesus' last words are, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Or she could have gone to the gospel of John, where Jesus' last words are, it is finished. Both of them are relatively calm and triumphant, giving what a death by crucifixion feels like. But instead, Agatha decides to zero in on the last words as recorded in Mark and Matthew's Gospels. And that is this wrenching, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this is really fixating on the the anguish and abandonment part that Mary has already been seeing in the previous scenes, but now culminates in these last words before death on the cross. And it's obviously extremely upsetting. And Mary protests, no, no, it is not true. He cannot have done anything really wrong. There has been some dreadful mistake. It can happen sometimes. There has been some confusion of identity. He has been mistaken for someone else. He is suffering for someone else's crime. And of course, we know that this is actually true, just not in the sense that Mary perceives it to be. And I th- and we really feel for Mary at this point. Mm. And I also just like what a great Christy thing this is to do is for a sentence to be uttered that's true, but not in the way at least the speaker thinks it's true or, you know, and, and we have to be good detectives of the story to understand that she is speaking the truth, but not the way she thinks she is either. Yep. So then, however, the angel is going to show her that, well, no, he's not actually suffering for someone else's crime in the sense that Mary thinks, but for his own. So now the angel shows her in another a switch of tableau, the figure of the man she revered most on the earth, the high priest of her church. And just another little side note from me here. I'm very struck that she says the high priest of her church. She doesn't say the high priest of the temple. She doesn't make it super Jewish here. She is making this kind of like by using the word church, she's making it proper to Christians rather than externalizing the blame onto the Jews. And I just note that because as you have often observed, there's a lot of casual anti-Semitism in Christie. So it's kind of happy, like in this one place where the consequences are pretty high, she actually makes it proper to Christians rather than blaming the Jews. I was very struck by that too, almost to the point where, because I don't have the same, the same sort of confidence, I think as a reader, I'm not as familiar with my Bible as, as you clearly are, Sarah. And I was thinking to myself while I was reading the story, well, they, they are Jewish, right? (laughs) That, you know, that is, that, that's kind of the point, you know, not the point, but like, that's, that's how the story works. And it's minorly alluded to, but there's not a whole lot made of it. And I think it is really interesting that she chose to do it that way. And and I think it kind of shows that this is the focus of this story. The purpose of this story really is different from what she's doing in her mystery. So there is, there's nothing casual, you know, about if she were to do that, it wouldn't be casual. Right. And um, I think she was putting a lot of thought into how she was characterizing people and different faiths and whatnot. And it, and it does feel respectful. Right. Well, I mean, you know, Mary, Jesus, and 
this high priest, they're all Jewish together. So it's like an internal quarrel. And so in a way, even if she had drawn more attention here to the high priest being Jewish, it would have kind of missed the point that it's Mary accepting the correct judgments of the high priest of something she belongs to Mm. that as we're about to hear now, this noble looking priest declares, this man has spoken blasphemy. That is the judgment against her son. But again, this is within the family. It's not between two different competing religious families at this point in the story. Right. And by the way, it actually didn't occur to me while I was reading the story, but just while we were reviewing it just now, this flashing onto different scenes of her son's life. Sure, it's her son's life and not her life, but it reminds me a little bit of A Christmas Carol. Um, oh yeah yeah. right maybe just because i'm in the christmas mode but we know that christy was a huge dickens fan and this is a christmas christy i mean this was very much written i think to be consumed around the christmas holiday and i have to imagine that she was at least indirectly inspired by christmas carol which had kind of you know sunk in to her dna as a writer or just as a person (laughs) honestly right um, and as a dickens fan so I, i i love the connection that i think we can draw between a christmas carol and this story yeah, that um, means that we are reading A Ghost of Christmas Past, but she is she is seeing the ghost of Easter future or Good Friday future. <laughs> I love it. Yes, exactly. Thank you for putting it that way. So we kind of diddle-oop our way back <laughs> into the stable, <laughs> back to the nativity scene. And Mary is in a state of total disbelief. You know, she and Joseph and now baby Jesus, they they are a good God-fearing family. Her family, Joseph's family, they are going to bring their son up to practice religion and to revere and honor the faith of his fathers. A son of ours could never be guilty of blasphemy. I cannot believe it. All this that you have shown me cannot be true. Mary is still protesting to this angel. This just cannot be right, what you have shown me. Right. So, I mean, this is the time, right, to doubt whether the angel is telling her the truth about the future. And so then in the story, the angel shows his face to her again. He is still beautiful and radiant. And he says to Mary, what I have shown you is truth. It's capitalized in the text. For I am the morning angel and the light of the morning is truth. Do you believe me now? And this really is the key moment in the story because I'm just going to quote directly from Christie's text here. And sorely against her will, Mary knew that what she had been shown was indeed truth with a capital T. And she could not disbelieve anymore. She's so distressed in this moment that she looks at the baby and she cries out, Oh, indeed, it would have been better for you if you had never been born or if you had died with your first breath, for then you would have gone back to God pure and unsoiled. So at that point, it becomes clear that this was actually where the angel hoped to bring Mary by showing her the terrible future waiting her son. He he wanted her to recognize it would have been better for this child never to have been born or to have died in childbirth. So the angel says... Look, I realize as a mother that you are grieving. So I am actually going to give you the power to say whether this child of yours will live or die. I sort of reading this, I was like, oh, he's the angelic department of pre-crime, like from Minority Report or something <laughs> like the little yeah. little ball rolled down the chute. Like, oh, criminal. <laughs> But 
Mary, being the pious woman that she is, she doesn't quite understand what he's saying. What she takes from it is, the Lord gave him the baby to me. If the Lord now takes him away, then I see it may indeed be mercy. And though it tears my flesh, I submit to God's will. So I don't know, maybe this is more like the sliding doors version. <laughs> like, um, you know, she could see, well, if he lives, it'll turn out this way. So even though it would break my heart to lose my baby, maybe it's all for the best. If, if God wants to take him from me now, then God actually has been merciful showing me what would have happened to him anyway. So I will, I will submit, I will accept what God determines. Right. I will accept this thing that may or may not happen beyond my control. And the angel is like, "Mm, that's not quite good enough. (laughs) The angel says, and now I'm quoting again from the text. It is not quite like that. God lays no command on you. The choice is yours. You have seen the future. Choose now if the child shall live or die. And the angel gives her no advice as to what she should do. Christy describes him here, I think, in in a very evocative way. He was golden and beautiful and infinitely remote. Mary is just left to think to herself about matters. And so she does. She thinks slowly and carefully. And wouldn't you know, as she does this, she begins to notice little things among those scenes that she has been shown. We might even say that she begins to pick up on clues. So yay. Oh, happy day. Let's take a walk now along our first, we actually have two, our first bridge of clues here with Mary, mother of Jesus, as she notices some things that she didn't notice before. Would you like to take the first clue, Sarah? Sure. So these are the clues in the scenes that the angel has shown her that she didn't pick up on the first time because she was so concentrated on her son's anguish. But the first clue we get is she thinks back to the cross scene. And uh, here's how, how Agatha puts it. She saw, for instance, the face of the man on the right hand cross, not an evil face, only a weak one. And it was turned toward the center cross, and on it was an expression of love and trust and adoration. And it came to Mary with sudden wonder. It was my son he was looking at like that. So again, the reader who knows the story will infer that the man with the bestial face we saw earlier, who's obviously a criminal, um, he is one of the two criminals executed with Jesus. But in Luke's version of the story, the other criminal is not so bad, so unrepentant. This is obviously the man who is not evil, but weak. And he's the one who rebukes the other criminal for cursing Jesus and says, hey, we're getting what we deserved. But then this weak criminal turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So that's clearly who we're supposed to understand this not evil, but weak criminal who adores her son. That's who it is. Right. All right. Clue number two, Mary is thinking about the scene in the garden. Uh, you know, when she, when she sees her son grown up as a man, Christy writes, and suddenly sharply and clearly She saw her son's face as it had been when he looked down at his sleeping friends in the garden. There was sadness there and pity and understanding and a great love. And she thought, it is the face of a good man. 
it's a small revelation, but a key one because she's acquiring the tools to kind of come to the realization that her son can be a good man and a criminal at the same time. It's, it's thinking outside the box, <laughs> isn't it? And, and, yeah. and she sort of has to do it. It's forced upon her in this moment when she's just a, a mother with a newborn baby, enjoying her baby in the first flush of having given birth to him. So it's a lot, <laughs> I think to get there, but I love the way that Christy steps this out because she's really like coming to the realization step by step. And I think this is, this is another key step. Mm. Yeah. Mary perceives that there is a contradiction. The issue is to find out where exactly does the contradiction lie. Mm -hmm. And so, and you remember she was angry and bitter at the friends asleep, but then she sees that her son looks at them with pity and understanding. So that's a great contrast even to her own reaction. Yeah. That takes us to clue number three of looking back over the scene. She's back where the splendid high priest is standing and accusing her son of blasphemy. But this time, instead of looking at the priest, she focuses on Jesus and she realizes in his eyes was no consciousness of guilt. So for a man who was good and wise and understanding and and full of pity, uh, clearly it would have shown on his face if he had felt that he was guilty of the crime as charged, but clearly he doesn't. So now we're getting a little bit closer to where the contradiction actually lies. Right. And, you know, from these three clues, the major deduction to be drawn is that even though her son has grown up to be a a criminal or a supposed blasphemer and to have violated the laws of his church or temple, right? Her son is also just as clearly a good man, a loved man, a wise man, a kind man, et cetera, et cetera, perhaps even a great man. So that the contradiction must lie in those laws, right? The, The contradiction is in something outside of her son himself. Because she's doing this all from the perspective of, you know, of it not having happened yet. She has to get there before it's happened. And that's really hard. But I think Christy sells the fact that she's able to get there through her intense love for her son, because she's she is able to laser focus on him in these visions that she receives and make these deductions based on that laser focus of a mother for her child. Right. So, but this is exactly the point now where the angel is going to come and speak exactly to that, that love for her son, because now the angel kind of breaks into her uh, self-reflection and says, will you spare your son suffering and evil doing? Uh, interestingly, both of those are there suffering, which he could just be an innocent victim of, but evil doing, that means he's, you know, the active agent of whatever crime he's guilty of. And so Mary finally comes to her conclusion. And here we're going to, we're going to quote her whole speech because it's a powerful one. We got to hear the whole thing. So she says, it is not for me, an ignorant and simple woman to understand the high purposes of God. The Lord gave me my child. If the Lord takes him away, then that is his will. But since God has given him life, it is not for me to take that life away. For it may be that in my child's life, there are things that I do not properly understand. It may be that I have seen only part of a picture, not the whole. My baby's life is his own, not mine. 
and I have no right to dispose of it. And Kemper, when I got to the end of the speech, I could hear (laughs) in my mind's ear, David Suchet saying in Hercule Poirot's voice, I do not approve of murder. (laughs) That's the best, the best paraphrase. That is exactly what Mary is saying there. (laughs) You were, you were dead on with that. I really, really love that. Well, this angel, this pesky angel tries again (laughs) and he says, will you not lay your child in my arms and I will bear him back to God? And Mary responds, take him in your arms if it is God's command, but I will not lay him there. And the angel then vanishes. And at this point, Joseph just so happens to return. Couldn't have gotten there (laughs) 10 minutes earlier, Joseph. And Mary tells him, you know, actually, can I just jump in here? I didn't think of it until just now, but this is of course, like also echoing unconsciously, maybe the garden of Eden story. Cause the serpent gets Eve alone. Sorry if I just spoiled the story there, but I think listeners know where this is going. Uh, Eve is alone with the serpent who tempts her. And then the serpent scuttles off and Adam comes over. And then, you know, Eve is left with Adam to discuss what just happened. And so we have a kind of mirror image there, but as we're going to see, it turns out quite opposite from the Adam and Eve story. So I think actually it makes sense sense that Joseph was absent for this thing that Mary is going through. If ever there were a story whose spoiler alert has expired, I think it might be (laughs) what happens in the Garden of Eden. So I am not telling anyone to fast forward for any amount of time for that. Um, Yeah, I really love that. I I have to imagine Christy perhaps did structure it in the same way, or or again, at least there was some sort of a, a subconscious kind of mapping on that she was doing there. So Mary tells Joseph the whole story as a wife does to a husband, as spouses do, and he approves of what she did. And he muses that it may have been a, quote, lying angel, end quote. Mary says, no, 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 no. He didn't lie. She was sure of that with every instinct in her. That's what Christy writes. And Joseph says that, you know, they're going to be very careful with their religious instruction of baby Jesus. He will go with us to the synagogue on the Sabbath and keep all the feasts and the purifications. That's one of the few references where we know that they were talking about a Jewish faith there. And But interestingly, it's only deployed positively, like the positive program to make sure the boy is good. That's when it becomes specifically Jewish and the negative portrayal is attributed to a high priest of the quote church. church. So again, I'm really fascinated that she made that choice to associate these very obviously specifically Jewish words with a positive program. Absolutely. And we know that she wrote this story at least in the mid to late forties, you know, that's when it was mm, first published. So she right. probably wrote it around that time. And she was certainly still engaging in, unfortunately, you know, in some casual anti-Semitism around that time. So it is, it is really interesting to contrast this. I think with some of the mysteries, Joseph and Mary look down and the baby is holding out his hand, which is something we've seen baby Jesus do in many depictions as if to say mm-hmm. to his mother, well done. And at this point, I'm thrilled to say that we actually have our second bridge of clues here for this story, because sure, this angel has been referred to as the angel for most of the story. Joseph has just seeded a little bit of doubt here saying, "Hmm, maybe it's a lying angel. And this story, not surprisingly, hinges on the true identity of this angel. So who exactly is this angel? Well, luckily, Agatha Christie is the writer of this story, so we have some clues to answer that question. Sarah, take it away. 
Well, clue number one is that at the very beginning of the story, and how often does Agatha put the answer right at the beginning of the story, but you're not paying attention. (laughs) The angel is described as shining, quote, with the radiance of the morning sun. And again, this is proof to me of how well Christy knew her Bible and her ideal reader would have to be very astute to pick up on the point of that too, because this is an allusion to the book of Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 14, verse 12, which is speaking to a particular angel. And the verse is, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. This angel in question goes by the name of the light bearer that's drawn from the day star or sun of dawn. And in Latin, that comes to us as Lucifer. That is right, Christy. (laughs) You're astonished, right? You never saw that one coming. Christy puts us on notice in paragraph three of the story that the angel visiting Mary is none other than Lucifer. That's the devil, in case you weren't sure. <laughs> right, right. Just right, dot, dot all those I's, cross those T's. Yes. So clue number two is really an additive clue, but it drives the point home that the angel in question is Lucifer. Um, this is when the angel says, for I am the morning angel and the light of the morning is truth. Once again, we're getting a reference to the angel as the morning angel, which is Lucifer's designation. Also, you know, when the angel says that everything he's shown Mary is the truth, we touched on this as as we were going through the scene, but he is technically accurate. It's only upon further considering these scenes that she's been shown that Mary realizes the deceptive nature of these scenes on their surface. The angel has basically been employing yield misdirection or sleight of hand, <laughs> a classic trope of detective fiction and of Agatha Christie in particular, not to mention the age old trick of omission, which is a trick Agatha Christie wielded better than practically any other mystery writer in one book in particular. I won't say which one the <laughs> angel here sure is telling the truth with a capital T, but he is not telling the whole truth. And I love that the tricks he's playing here really are tricks that we see in so many of Christie's mystery novels. But unlike in Christie's mystery novels, like if you are, uh, you know, a biblically informed reader of the stories, you're like practically screaming at the page, Mary, don't fall for it. He's not telling you the whole story. (laughs) So you get to like, actually for once be on the side of knowing the whole story and just cheering, please, Mary, please, Mary, don't fall for it. Um, And that actually leads us to clue number three, which is the angel, I think kind of constrained or forced to tell the truth somewhat against his own will has to say, God lays no command. The angel is offering Mary though, the power to act as God essentially, because she gets to determine whether or not her child will live or die. And the deduction of of faith here of religious devotion to God would be that she has no right to make a decision that lies with God alone. She does not have the right to determine life or death over her child, which she says, it's his life. It's not my life. God can take that life because it's God's life to take or to grant, but not me. So that means this angel by offering to marry God's own power, can only be an angel who aspires after God's power himself and intends harm to both Mary and the child, the child especially. And that takes us into the world as it actually is. We know everything that's going on here. And fortunately, Christy pulls up the veil and really just tells us straight out what's going on here. Because after Mary makes her choice, after she chooses 
wisely, we see the angel's true colors. And Lucifer is, quote, quivering with pride and rage. He is furious that a foolish, ignorant woman should resist him. And he looks forward to tempting that baby when that baby is grown into a man. And this, of course, is forecasting Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And Lucifer is quite certain that he will succeed where he has failed here with Mary and that Jesus will be tempted. Though, of course, Lucifer is also wrong about this because Jesus will successfully resist the temptation in the wilderness many years into the future. It turns out that Jesus was a good boy, listened to his mother, and she trained him well to resist the devil's temptation. Those synagogue lessons paid off. They did. They did. (laughs) And then finally, in case we hadn't quite gotten the point, now Christy actually tells us plainly the identity of this angel. Uh, Quote, and Lucifer, son of the morning, laughed aloud in ignorance and arrogance and flashed through the sky like a burning streak of fire down to the nethermost depths. And this is clearly alluding to, again, the Gospel of Luke, this time, chapter 10, verse 18, where Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Our scene then shifts again to the east, where three watchers of the heavens came to their masters to notify them of a great light in the sky. It must be that some great personage is born. And they all murmur of signs and portents, but a very old watcher contradicts them and says, a sign from God? God has no need of signs and wonders. It is more likely to be a sign from Satan. It is in my mind that if God were to come amongst us, he would come very quietly. Mm. So I think definitely that last line is Agatha's own sentiment because uh, we won't go into other stories in this collection, but she is very into the subtle and quiet appearance of God in our midst. That is a recurring theme here. But the crazy thing about this story (laughs) that reconfigures the title of the story and thus of the whole book is that actually the star over Bethlehem is not some happy constellation that astronomers of the ancient worlds identified from Persia and followed to Jesus' birthplace. No, actually the star over Bethlehem is Lucifer falling from the sky in his ignorance and arrogance at his failure temptation of Mary on his way back to hell. The star of Bethlehem is an angry devil. What a thing to do. (laughs) I mean, this is all conjecture, but if I had to guess what the genesis of this story was, it would be that Christy had the idea when she was just kind of musing over the traditional story, thinking to herself, hmm, the star of Bethlehem, that seems like such a flashy showboaty sort of thing to do (laughs) seems much more like the work of Satan than God, because it is true. I mean, it's a through line in these stories and it's so Christie esque I think to associate ultimate goodness (laughs) and stability and faith with someone who, who comes in quietly and sort of like does the work behind the scenes. And like, you don't even realize Mm. that he's there until the work has been done. And that I think, you know, goes hand in hand with the the way she was or, or tended to be. She was not a person who herself liked to showboat. And she often had these ideas 
about established traditions. You know, she mentions in so many of her books how she would have done the three weird sisters in Macbeth, for example. And she had mm, right, she had right. all sorts of unconventional ideas about Shakespeare and other very traditional things. And I could easily see her saying, Star of Bethlehem, sign of God. Pfft. No sign of, you know, sign of the devil, more like it. Hey, I'm going to write a story about that. <laughs> and, and, and totally, pull, she totally pulls it off. She does. It's amazing. And, you know, there, there is lots of room to play here because uh, I think contrary to popular belief, there is so little about the devil or devils or demons in the Bible. I mean, almost nothing in the Old Testament. And even in the New Testament, which is the main source for it, there's very little. And the New Testament is really not interested in devils or what they're about or how they exist or how they can continue to resist God. They're just kind of there. And the point is to get rid of them and loosen their power over people. But there's no real curiosity. So actually, you know, she has kind of the freedom because of the relative paucity of commentary in the Bible to just kind of see, well, what would happen if we, you know, reconfigured this kaleidoscope a little bit? I thought it was weirdly effective, actually, because we've had to have this shift about what kind of person Jesus is. Like, how does this contradiction exist that he's a good and innocent man and yet condemned as a criminal and executed. And then to like, in the same way, sort of flip around the star of Bethlehem, which is such a happy, cheerful thing. And on top of every Christmas tree and turn it into the screamingly angry Satan diving down into hell. I mean, wow, that takes chutzpah, but also tremendous confidence in the Christian story and the biblical text to play with it that way. And talk about the ultimate extrajudicial ending, right? I mean, (laughs) we've talked so much on this podcast about the way she, she does play around with, you know, how these characters can sometimes exist outside of the traditional justice system. And that's, that's kind of the whole point here is that, yeah, I mean, this was a, a systemic failure, or at least this was a break, you know, a systemic break and and, and a beginning of something new, which is part of what Jesus did. It's, you know, it's a new philosophy because this to me feels like a very new Testament-y story, but it's like she's injecting a lot of the Old Testament into a New Testament story. Oh, do you know what I mean? With like with this talk of like Lucifer and devils and the focus on devils. And it's really interesting what she's doing here. Well, I mean, that's the funny thing about, like I said, there is almost, I mean, other than this one verse from Isaiah, which had kind of like got lifted by Christians to illuminate some of the devil related texts in the New Testament. It's actually not an Old Testament concern at all. It's just a, a little pet peeve of mine, but people often talk about the Old Testament God as the God of wrath, which is like such a desperate misreading of the Old Testament. There's plenty of wrath in the New Testament and so much mercy in the Old Testament. So to me, this is very much like focused on this Christmas story. But I think for her, it's both the clue thing, but also, as you said, there's so much interest in her books about extrajudicial solutions to crimes. You've mentioned before how rarely she calls into question the justice system, at least in, in her England in the 20th century. But I mean, the story of Jesus is like the ultimate story of the miscarriage of justice where all all systems fail. So I think that's kind of where her teasing out of the story lies primarily. This is Agatha Christie's down with the patriarchy moment. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, to put a modern spin on it. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that strikes me, and there is this one last little, you know, final shift back to the stable, right? And to the main right, right. And that and that, you know, lovely nativity scene where all the animals are having a great time and all the visitors pile in and they're admiring the smiling baby and 
you know, they say there never was such a child. And and that's a very traditional ending to this Christmas story. But it reminded me actually of the ending of Stay With Me, The Lord of the Rings. And this isn't the first <laughs> time that I've made a comparison between Agatha Christie and J.R.R. Tolkien, but I don't think that I actually do it enough. I believe that the only other time I talked about this was with the scholar Alison Light, because she talked about that in her seminal work about Christie from several decades ago. But they were born around the same time, and they're both very mid-century English writers, and they both have this similar emphasis on the importance of domesticity over mm. over everything else in their very different genres. And it's so striking how the Lord of the Rings that, you know, you can't have a bigger, broader, bolder tale of adventure. And it ends on this note of the hobbits going home and getting married and living out their lives with their children. And like that being what's worth it. Like the whole adventure was mm. for that. And it's like this idea of all of this then boiling down. We get this final little coda on the happy family and the people sort of surrounding the baby. And it's a note of domesticity that rings true mm. for me as to like who Christy was. And I think that too uh, speaks to the enduring power of, of her work, not just a tale like this, but many of her mysteries as well, because she was so interested in domesticity, actually, and very accurate about how she depicted it, which is why I think her books still speak to people, because even though domesticity changes, <laughs> the sense of domesticity and the importance of it is universal and timeless. And I think that's also why, you know, Tolkien is, is still very relevant and people can't get enough of him. And it's just funny because they both, if you describe both of them, they seem like such dinosaurs and like they're so stuck, mm -hmm. completely stuck in a specific time in a specific country in a specific moment. But then because they're dealing with this, you know, these somewhat universal themes and applications, I think that's part of why they're as powerful as they are. And I don't always think of Tolkien when I'm reading Christie, which is why I don't make that comparison enough. But I did think of it when I was reading this story. That is such an interesting observation. And as you're talking, I was just thinking of the other stories in this collection and they are all oriented somehow towards, you know, family life or ordinary life being blessed or restored or mm -hmm. human connections on that very just everyday interpersonal level being healed. And even actually, uh, you know, for what, whenever you get back to these stories, the last one in this collection actually goes back to Mary, but many years in the future when mm -hmm. Jesus is already risen from the dead and ascended into heaven and gone. And she, we figure out, is in exile on the island of Patmos with the beloved disciple slash John, who is in the process of preparing to receive his revelation, which will form the last book of the Bible. But it's so focused on their domestic life together and how she like tries to get him to eat because he's too obsessed with his visions and forgets to eat. And he finally agrees to eat just to make her happy. So there again, I think that really points to that that valuation of domesticity and also, you know, the watcher, the old watcher saying, well, I think God would come quietly, not flashily if he came among us. It's a lovely bookend too. that. I love how we have the first story, last story focusing on Mary and at, at sort of the, not the beginning of, of her life by any means, but sort of, you know, a beginning, it feels like a beginning in the first story and it feels like we have an ending in, in the last and it, it's very elegant. Definitely. Definitely. 
Don't touch that dial. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of our episode. We just wanted to take a moment to ask you, our dear listeners, for a favor. If you haven't already done so, we would very much appreciate it. If you take a moment to, you know, give us a rating or a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews make it much easier for other Christy fans such as yourselves to find our podcast. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach. It should take you a matter of seconds and lucky you, we're going to provide you with those seconds right now. So go to it. Thank you so much. And now back to our regularly scheduled programming. I think we've analyzed the heck out of that story. Um, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> uh, you know, there's there but how no fun adi- to do it the way you've done it with all the other short stories of Agatha as mysteries. I was just like thrilled at how well this one structurally fit with the way you usually break down stories on the podcast. And just to be clear, listeners, this was Sarah's idea to do the breakdown this way. I never would have done this, but, you know, we were sort of talking before actually recording and she said, hey, you know, I actually took all these notes and I broke down the story this way. And I, and I think that kind of works. And she sent them to me and I was like, oh, my God, that absolutely does work. So I'm so glad that we did this. And thank you for having your revelation as to treating this like a mystery. But, you know, I think listeners will be shocked that there's no English language adaptation or any other adaptation <laughs> of the story. Hey, I still think that eventually every single Agatha Christie story will be adapted in some way, shape, or form. So Star Over Bethlehem is just waiting for its moment, as far as I'm concerned. I, I think the the one with the, the mutant animals is obviously the next one to do. <laughs> yes. I should have mentioned that there is a short story here that, that does feature frog birds. They're kind of like half frog, <laughs> half birds, I think. <laughs> yes. Yeah, seems to be due to a leaky nuclear power plant. And that's not the one set in the year 2000, even. <laughs> no, it's totally not that. No, and that one to me, I was like, oh, yes, this feels like it was written in the 60s. Right. (laughs) That's why I'm pretty sure like most of these other stories were not written, you know, 20 years earlier and serialized. They seem like they were written for this collection. And that feels like a weird, paranoid 60s story. Yeah, really fascinating. I'm going to have to cover (laughs) all of these. Let's be honest. They're so interesting. But so I mentioned this up top, but I really would love to speak with you a bit more about this piece that you wrote recently on Miss Marple. Because how could I resist the opportunity to talk about my beloved Miss Marple, especially after just covering the final Miss Marple short story? I'm still in mourning here. Oh. It's about Miss Marple and the idea of low anthropology. That was a phrase I had never even heard before I read your piece. I would love if you could just explain to listeners what that is and how it relates to our beloved Miss Marple. You bet. So this was inspired by a book written by a friend of mine, David Zoll, who's also a theologian. So his book is called Low Anthropology. And so the idea behind it is basically, so if you take anthropology, not as like what you majored in college, but as your operational theory of human nature. And so his argument is basically that a high or optimistic anthropology, that means expecting a lot out of people, expecting people to to ever more improve and grow and every way optimize and maximize their potential actually is terrible for love. It leads to constant disappointment and bitterness at how people have failed us, but also 
everlasting dissatisfaction with ourselves. We can never be what we want to be. And um, this is a pretty central insight of, of the Bible, especially of the Apostle Paul. Famously in Romans chapter 7, he says, I'm always doing the exact things I don't want to do, but the things I do want to do, I don't have the power to do. What is going on here? Why am I like this? I feel and you, Paul. So, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, anyone with, with uh, serious self-knowledge is going to have to agree like there is some serious mismatch between my expectations of myself and my ability to perform. So Dave, my, my friend in this book, he develops instead the idea of a low anthropology, which is basically let's all step back and have a much more realistic set of expectations for what humanity is capable of. Bring down those expectations. And actually what we find in the process is a much greater ability to love ourselves and others. It doesn't mean that bad isn't bad, wrong isn't wrong, sin isn't sin, to use the Christian language, but that if we're actually going to both survive and have love for ourselves and one another, we have to incorporate this failure to meet up our own expectations into it. Is there a biblical basis for this philosophy, or is this something more that your friend kind of came up with himself? I'm just curious. So, yeah, so he coined the term, or maybe his dad, who's also a theologian, like my dad is also a theologian. It, it tends <laughs> to run in families. Um, yeah, so that that's his phrase, but I would say it's a really good shorthand for the entire biblical view of human nature. You know, just a quick educational bit. So many people think like the Bible is a handbook towards improving yourself. It's much more like a record of completely wretched people and how God God somehow mysteriously manages to love and redeem them anyway. So what he's kind of doing, what Dave is doing in the book is like drawing out this deep conviction about the brokenness and weakness and even, you know, maliciousness and nastiness of human nature, hmm. but in the service of giving us all a little more mercy and seeing our need for redemption. So it is definitely, it's completely formed out of biblical ideas. It's just kind of giving a more contemporary language and access point to it. Got it. Well, and and I think many listeners will have already made the connection based on what you said to Miss Marple, because that is one of the marvelous things about Miss Marple is that she is a woman of faith. She is a Christian woman too. And this, it comes up a lot. It comes up more than you would think, actually, when you really do mm -hmm. read the texts closely, that Miss Marple is a very Christian woman. And yet she does think very little of people, or she at least has no problem recognizing the many, many and extremely serious faults of her fellow man. And this is, you know, one of the many ways in which she is based on Agatha Christie's Auntie Granny and perhaps even her other grandmother, since she had two grandmothers on her mother's side, but her Auntie Granny in particular just had no problem thinking the worst of people and almost invariably being correct <laughs> about that, which is one of Miss <laughs> Marple's superpowers. But I think most people, and myself included, would view that as a contradiction. The fact that she could be devoutly Christian and have this faith-based approach to her own life and yet also think so poorly of her fellow man. But I think what this low anthropology philosophy is doing is showing that that's not necessarily as much of a contradiction as it might seem to be. Is that fair? 
In fact, I would say there is zero contradiction that actually with this proper understanding of the Bible's merciful but very low estimation of human potential, that Miss Marple is actually the iconic Christian in the whole Christiverse, that it is her incredibly low expectations of people that actually allows her both to have a kind of mercy to them that almost nobody else does, while at the same time holding strictly to justice. Like, she does understand that there are, even within, you know, fallen humanity, there are lines you don't cross. And one of those is taking another person's life. And in that case, you know, within purely human justice, it is important that the guilty are the ones who are caught and punished, even if we're not entirely thrilled with her passionate devotion to capital punishment. (laughs) But um, (laughs) on the other hand, you know, and she's really committed to the innocent where crime is concerned, even if she has no assumptions that anyone is innocent where like their souls are concerned. So yes, I I would say Christy is presenting a very authentic Christian attitude towards people. And I also wonder, I'm curious what you think about this. I wonder if Miss Marple is how Agatha is trying to teach herself to grow up and stop being naive because, you know, what happened with her and Archie was so devastating. And, you know, I've read a couple of the biographies and and studies of this, and I, I recently read unfinished portrait, which is kind of her mm-hmm. her version of events. And I see in that a young person, which we know she was very airy, fairy, and full of her imagination, who just couldn't believe bad things would happen and would happen to her and that you could be betrayed by someone so close to you. And I feel like ever after that, Miss Marple is Agatha's way of teaching herself, be realistic, grow up, accept the truth about people, also so that never happens to you again. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that Miss Marple appeared on the scene directly after the events leading, totally. leading that ultimately led. It took a while for the divorce to actually happen, but the morass and the mess had essentially taken place already. The break had already occurred by the time that Miss Marple first came on the scene in those short stories that were collected into the 13 problems. And then of course we have murder at the vicarage in 1930. I think there is a reason why she happened then and she didn't happen in 1920. And I think, I think there's a lot in what you're saying there. And, and she talks in a little bit in her, in her own autobiography about the way that her auntie granny would almost scold her, right? Like why would you ever think that that person was going to do what they said they were going to do. That's so stupid. (laughs) You know, they go like, why? And I'm sure she was like, why would you think that nothing bad would ever happen to you? Why would you think that your husband would be a perfect person and treat you wonderfully, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And I think she, you know, she was one of those, there are just, there's so many layers to her. And it's so interesting because I think she did have that airy, fairy, imaginative, creative side. And that's the foundation upon which this genius of an author was built. But then she had the awareness, the self-awareness and just the awareness of the world to be able to appreciate who her auntie granny was and to create this Miss Marvel character. But I don't think she ever lost that, that initial sense of herself either. I think she, she sort of mm. held on to both. So it's almost like she needed Miss Marple, you know, there is like yeah. a little bit of a grounding influence or something or like a point counterpoint going on. I think you can feel in those Miss Marple books that they are helping her or serving her in a way that the Poirots weren't because the Poirots are business. Like the Poirots are, yeah, mm. I'm a really good mystery writer and I can, you know, <laughs> I can knock your socks off with some high concept puzzles and whatnot, and I'm going to do it. 
but this is me putting on a show and it, it always to me, and I can't, you know, textual support can only go so far that you start getting into the ineffable qualities of, of what strikes you as a reader. But it always feels to me like there's something a little more sacred going on with the Miss Marples. And yeah, I think that, that that is really interesting. Could be. I love your theory. And I, so I just also want to connect what you said now about Miss Marple and low anthropology to this point that you made in your piece, because I thought it was so brilliant. And I really would just love for you to share it with everyone else. I'm, I'm forcing you to, because <laughs> I, I it's, it's so brilliant. This sort of hypothesis or theory that you posit in the piece as to why mysteries are as enduringly popular as they are. Because what I love about this theory is that it doesn't refute the common theory of mystery as catharsis in that we have a broken society and then all the pieces get fit into place and everything has, you know, has a pat ending. And that's very satisfying to people, especially in times of turmoil. I don't think that we need to refute that because I think that is, and that always will be one of the reasons that people read mysteries, but I think there are many other reasons as well. And I think that you have hit on a really good one. Well, I think that we read mysteries to see ourselves in them, too, <laughs> that there's something about the crime and maybe like in, in the classic era crime, it doesn't spill over so close to us, like on the news or in hard boiled or in true crime or whatever. But it gives us a place to actually look at our our dark side, our low anthropology and see our masses of failures. And even if we don't commit murder with our you know hands <laughs> or a weapon in our hands, we do in our hearts. Um, actually, you know, and, and to use another thing that uh, Christy would have known well in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you even say in your heart, you fool, you have already committed murder, at least before the eyes of God, if not in the mm. eyes of the justice system. Mm. And so there's something about just allowing us to look at that dark side of humanity. But also, you know, the, the other funny thing about, you know, a classic puzzle mystery is that nearly everyone is a suspect or everyone who's interesting and significant in the story is a suspect. And often there's a good reason for it, not just being in the wrong place at the wrong time, but some other crime is being committed off to the side or some dark secret is being concealed or whatever. So even the people who are ultimately exonerated of the murder are still found guilty of some other kind of moral or actual crime. So there's something about that kind of universal accusation that I don't know is like, I think maybe because especially American culture is so optimistic and optimizing mm -hmm. that to read a story where everybody is guilty to some degree and the finger gets pointed at everybody, all the secrets come out. There's some kind of a relief like, okay, I don't have to pretend anymore. I have low anthropology. <laughs> I, I think that's absolutely brilliant. And I, and when I read that in your piece, I like underlined it. I, I was like, this rings so true for me because I think, and, and yeah, let's just speak for Americans at this point, but I think Americans can be so aspirational. And sometimes mm. I think it's hard for us. It's hard for me actually to read stories in which people are unremittingly and unrepentantly bad, bad, bad. And Christy herself makes fun of this through the character of Raymond West, right? Where Raymond <laughs> right. West writes these literary novels where everyone is just terrible and they have terrible sex and they do awful things to each other. And he's so proud of himself for creating such, such horrid characters. And I never thought about it, but a mystery is a story in which characters and, and like, 
80%, I mean, I don't know the actual percentage, but I'd say probably about 80% of the main cast of characters in any murder mystery, because there do need to be these robust red herring side plots are bad people to some significant extent. They've <laughs> they've had affairs yeah. or they've had, you know, children they haven't told anyone about or they've been harboring some other deep, dark secret. And even though they're not unmasked as the murderer at the end, something is unmasked or some in, indiscretion has been committed. And we still believe in them as people. And I think we're still able to consume the story and to interact with those characters and get that sort of a catharsis out of it in a way that we might not be able to, or I wouldn't be able to in a purely literary novel. And I think that's so helpful and so healthy given that this whole, you know, the low anthropology plus, which I, which also just very much rings true to me. I think that that has to be another reason why these mysteries are so enduringly popular. And I had, I just had never read it expressed exactly in that way. And I think you really are onto something there. Well, thanks. And I'm just glad to hear like classic detective fiction vindicated for its <laughs> realism. Cause like so often it's scoffed at and like, it's the hard boiled and the noir and the true crime and the serial killer stuff. That's realistic. Like, no, how often have you run into a serial killer? But every day you deal with people who let you down and frustrate you every day you deal with yourself. <laughs> so yep. I think actually this classic mystery fiction really is true to life in a way that the Raymond West novels just never will be. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I could rag on Raymond West all day. <laughs> so I mentioned that you are in Japan right now. I'm actually, I, I have to tell all of you listeners, I very rarely do these, these interviews and these co-host gigs with other people at night. But because Sarah is in Japan, I'm actually doing this at night, my time. And I'll be honest with you, Sarah, this is when I used to actually do my co-hosting with Catherine. So oh. I think, yeah, I think this is actually the first time since Catherine and I were co-hosting together that I've, I've done one of these evening co-hosting gigs and this has just been lovely. And I really appreciate being able to do this as a dialogue. I've talked about this before, but I think of it as the natural state of the podcast. And I'm so grateful that I was able to discuss this topic, which is such a personal one with another person and not have to monologue it myself like a weirdo. But so <laughs> well, I'm so honored to fill such large shoes as Catherine's and I'm so sorry she's not here. And I just want to back you up on your original insight. She has the best voice and I still go back and listen to <laughs> the episodes she was in. I'm just like, Oh, her voice. I love her voice. What a loss. She really does. And it's why, you know, listeners might notice I, I sometimes insert that ratings and review <laughs> ad that we yes. did together into the episodes because I really just love having just a sprinkling of her voice in the episode. I actually, I never yeah. skip over those. I just listen to them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I, I, I don't do it in every episode, but I really do try to do it as, as often as I can. But all of that was a very long-winded <laughs> segue into asking, since you are actually in Japan... I'm curious if you are at all familiar with the Agatha Christie fan club in Japan, whose rankings grid I was fortunate enough to feature on the show. I mean, that rankings grid was old, but I do know that there is some sort of a robust Agatha Christie fan club presence. And I just wonder if you have come across them at all. No, in fact, this is very funny. Everything I know about Agatha Christie in Japan, I've learned from your podcast. So actually it on my list to watch the anime series <laughs> 
with yes. Marvel and Poirot and the duck. Is that right? Oh, um, but duck. no, and yes, I don't, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I don't speak Japanese, so I wouldn't be able to get in on it that way, but yes, it, it's, it makes sense to me though, that that would be here. Cause basically every subculture you can imagine exists in Tokyo somewhere. <laughs> which which is one of the the many wonders of Tokyo why it's such a magical Indeed. place I'm curious though how did you get into Christy I mean what did she mean to you either growing up or or whenever you you first came across her Oh, yeah. So I've been trying to reconstruct. I'm pretty sure the first time I read a book of hers was wait for it. Hercule Poirot's Christmas. Oh boy. <laughs> it fits the, for the Christmas episode. It's Absolutely. That we're doing yes. here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was assigned in 10th grade English class. And it was my, I think it must've been my first time reading a detective novel because I remember like I was one of those kids who like always read the whole book, like within two days. And then just like you had to tread water for three weeks while we went through the whole thing <laughs> at everyone else's pace. But I remember my, my best friend at the time was, you know, she wasn't as far along. And so I was like, like saying, oh my gosh, you'll never believe who the killer is. And she's <laughs> like, is it so-and-so? And I was like, no, like an idiot. Cause I didn't understand how spoilers work then. And then finally she, she stumbles on who the actual killer is. I won't say here. And I was just like, uh, choke. What do I do now? <laughs> so that's how I learned never to have that conversation with someone who hasn't read the same book that you have. But then I don't think I read them any again until between my sophomore and junior year of college, I was staying with some relatives for the summer working and they just had a huge pile of Agatha Christie's in their house and there wasn't anything else to read. So I started reading them and I have very distinct memories of those. Like I remember the title third girl. I remember the plot of the pale horse. I remember reading curtain, which may have been the first one I read and of course, didn't make any sense being at the <laughs> beginning. And I remember like the revelatory moment and after the funeral. But the thing is, afterwards, I took away, I felt that Christy cheated all the time by not giving you all the clues and that she used bigamy constantly. And now that I've gone back, largely due to your podcast, actually, which I discovered through She Done It, shout out to She Done It. Love I've it. gone back and I just like the way I coped with the pandemic was I was like, all right, I'm going to read every Agatha Christie novel. Um, and, you know, and, you know, of the completionist part of me came out. Mm -hmm. And having done that, I was like, where did I get the idea, A, that she cheated, and B, that she used bigamy? Like, I could find two instances in the entire canon. So <laughs> anyway, that calls into question memory and Mm -hmm. Memory calls into question the judicial system itself, but we don't need to go there. <laughs> and I always was more of like a Dorothy Sayers fan. I discovered her a little bit later and she's more obviously religious and she's a very stylish writer. She's super smart and shows it off. And there's a kind of, you know, the development of Peter Whimsey and, and Harriet Vane and as like humans is much deeper. So I was very like snotty towards Agatha Christie until I started rereading with your podcast. But then I realized it's just like, there's no comparison. They're just two very very different kinds of authors. So I feel like Agatha Christie is the kind, like the sketch artist, like Picasso, you know, who like can draw five lines on a piece of paper and it evokes the universe. Whereas Dorothy Sayers is much more like to me, like she's a mosaic and there's lots of jewels and bright colors and flashing lights, but you, you just don't, you don't go to those two different kinds of pieces of art for the same reason. They serve totally different artistic visions. I subscribe to that analogy. And I think I would take it one step further and, and you don't have to go there with me because I think that Agatha Christie is a completely different kind of a writer from say a Dorothy Sayers or a PD James. But I think that the kind of quote unquote artwork she does is much more unusual than what a lot of those other writers do. And I think like 
Picasso, for example, there's only one Picasso, you know, like I think Mm -hmm. it's what Christie's doing. Almost no one else could do, which is why anyone who tries to imitate her, it's kind of a disaster. Whereas, (laughs) and I say this, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not as well read in Dorothy Sayers. I have to admit, but I, I have gotten into actually in the last couple of years on the Patreon account, we read cover her face, actually the first PD James mystery. And I love PD James. And I had read a few PD James's when I was younger, but I think what PD James is doing is a lot more traditional and conventional. She's doing it excellently, but she's doing, you know, Mm. you can see, I think the sort of almost like the 19th century tradition, which Agatha Christie herself very much also draws on and inherits, but she's doing it in her own very weird way. I think Agatha Christie is such a weird writer. She's Mm. one of a kind and it's, it's easy to feel snotty about her writing if you don't get it. And especially if maybe you read it when you were younger at a time when you could appreciate some of the more surface aspects of it, which are scintillating, right? Like, which are still good enough to <laughs> love, but the the brilliance of the writing eludes you. And I, that's why yeah. I think it is such a revelation to read as an adult and realize, oh my God, like she's doing something really, really interesting here. But that observation does not have to be at the expense of Dorothy Sayers and, and P.D. James. It's not meant to be, but I do think there is that kind of that unique quality to Agatha Christie's writing, which has been a big takeaway of my close read over these last six plus years. Yeah. I don't know if it was a really recent episode you did, because I've been listening to parts of the backlists as well. But at one point, I think you said something like, it's almost like she's writing modern archetypes or modern mythologies. And that's one of the reasons they're so Spartan. And that really makes a lot of sense to me. I think she kind of carved out some kind of of mythological or archetypal figures of the modern era. And that's, that's why you can't imitate her, but also why it works being so unadorned. Like you don't have florid, I suppose you do have florid ancient myths, but like the way you remember them is just the bare bones of the story, which are so effective is all you need is the bare bones and you're completely captivated. I think she works that way too. And I think, yeah, I think the the kind of art that Dorothy Sayers is doing is just of a different order. She's, she's not going for, for archetypal work. She's very much like zeroing in on the specifics of Peter Whimsy and Harriet Vane and the people they encounter, but not um, on the super underground level of reality. Yes, 100%. And by the way, and, and and I'll say this, I don't talk about my own writing very often on the podcast because this isn't a podcast about my writing. It's a podcast about Agatha Christie. But I include myself in that category of people who write very traditionally and conventionally. And even though I'm writing... When I write mysteries, I'm trying to do certain things in homage to Agatha Christie because I love her so much. I would never even attempt to try to write like her because I know that I wouldn't be able to. I think it was actually Jillian Gill also who said she she writes some adult fairy tales. <laughs> they're they're almost like oh sure right mm. fairy tales for adults, and that's why you know here in 2023 we're still chugging away reading them and talking about them and discovering new things about them and having big new splashy movies come out every single year, both <laughs> on the big screen and the small screen and everywhere else all over the world. So yeah, it, it's a great thing. She's truly in a class of her own. She is. She is. And so I'm curious, do you have a favorite Agatha Christie? You have identified some of the early ones you read, but do you have a favorite? Mm. You know, I, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but 
Hercule Poirot's Christmas really does have a sweet spot in my heart because it was the first. I just think the clues are amazing and the twist is so shocking. So, um, yeah, I know it has gotten a little denigration on this podcast. I'm not going to hold you to account for that, but um, yeah, and I think it was one of, <laughs> I know, I know. And I think it was one of the first I rediscovered when I started reading her again. And it was like, this is really good. I'm going to keep going. So I'm going to stick by that one. Hey, I think it's the first one is always a magical one, right? Even though I actually can't remember what the first Agatha Christie I read was, unfortunately, I wish I could, but I cannot. So I love that. And then I couldn't let you go without asking the question that I ask uh, nearly everyone on this podcast, Poirot or Marple? I know. I hate to say it, but it is Poirot and for the same reason. But also, I have to say, it's because probably the next time I picked up of Agatha Christie in adulthood after that college reading was I was vacationing in Belgium with my husband and son. We were taking a bicycle trip. I didn't bring enough to read. I went to a used bookstore and lo and behold, I found the big four, which is a totally awful, stupid disaster (laughs) of a Christie book. I get that, but it was Poirot and it was in Belgium. And, um, and then we, uh, I lived in France for almost eight years. So just something about his little, his French utterances and stuff and his concern with gastronomy, which I have to say speaks very much to my stomach as well as my heart. So in terms of like affection, definitely Poirot. But as you know, because I have not written about Poirot, I have written extensively about Marple, but she, she almost kind of like intimidates me. Like she, I I kind of need her also to keep me grounded, but like, I'm not sure I'd want to cozy up to her. Whereas Poirot, I know I could cook him a dinner that he would really enjoy. He would not shudder and, you know, we would get on famously, but Miss Marple, I, I think I'd want to more like consult when I need help. Yeah, your entry point for Poirot would be his stomach and you kind of have like a surefire path there, but you're on shaky ground with Miss Marvel. We all are. It could go, it could either go really well or really badly. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Uh, Well, Sarah, where should people go to read or, or listen to more of your work? I imagine there will be many people who will be curious to hear more from you after this episode. Sure. The easiest thing to do is just go to sarahhinlickywilson.com. You'll have to do two H's in a row there because there's an H on the end of Sarah and then Hinlicky. Everything that I do can be found there somewhere or other. And I will also give you a direct link to the Miss Marple essay that I wrote because it's like you have to be signed up for my newsletter to get it. But I'll give you a link to put in the show notes so people can just jump right to it. And I will put that website URL in the show notes as well. So we'll do a link to the website and a link to the Miss Marple article. I'm obviously a big fan of your work and I'm so thrilled that you reached out and asked to come onto the show because this has been a fantastic episode. I've really had so much fun and I just want to thank you for being a co-host with me. You are welcome. And thank you. It's been such a treat. Are you still here with me, listeners? Thank you so much to Sarah Hinlicky Wilson for discussing Star Over Bethlehem with me, not once, but twice on the podcast since I chose to rerun that fabulous episode for this Christmas special here. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation as well as my discussion of the naughty donkey before that. Who doesn't love a supersized Christmas slash end of year episode, right? For my next episode, I am so excited about this. 
I am going to be co-hosting along with three wonderful co-hosts. These are all gentlemen who have a lifelong love of and expertise in bringing Agatha Christie's plays to the stage. That's right. My first episode of the new year is going to be another all about Agatha and the theater. It's another installment in my overarching series about Agatha Christie, the playwright. Their names are Brad Friedman, Christopher Deal, and Jamie West. Brad Friedman has actually co-hosted on this podcast before. He and I discussed Marple, 12 New Mysteries, that new Miss Marple short story collection that came out late in 2022. So you already know he's a great co-host, but Christopher and Jamie are no slouches either. And we get down and dirty about what it is like to produce Christie for regional and more intimate venues, why Christie is as important as she is as a playwright. There is so much there to discuss. I cannot wait to bring you that conversation. So that will be in the new year. Should you require more All About Agatha before then? You can always head on over to the podcast's Patreon page. I have included a link in the notes to this episode. That's www.patreon.com forward slash allaboutagatha. I've got some Marjorie Allingham Christmas-themed short stories over there, especially if you're looking for more Christmas cheer and an Inspector Morse Christmas story as well. You can email me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. As evidenced by my housekeeping segment in this episode, I cherish those emails from you, so keep them coming. You can find the podcast on Twitter at All About the Dame and on Instagram at All About Agatha. You can find me on Facebook at Kemper Donovan Books. I encourage you all to pre-order my upcoming mystery novel, The Busybody, and to come see me at one of my upcoming events. Click on the link to my website to find out more about those. Please take a moment to give the podcast a rating and or a review. I really do so appreciate that. And I will see you next year in 2024. Bye, everyone. Bye.